You know, Colonel, we went through a lot of trouble to find you. They murdered his friends. And they took the only thing he would kill for. If you want your kid back, then you gotta cooperate. Right? Wrong. Now, somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna pay. Do you think that he's going to give us any problems? You'll do exactly as he's told. Last of the way, good fellas. You're a funny guy, Sally. That's why I'm going to kill you last. No. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. What are you doing? Helping you get her back. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's right, Major. You did. I lied. It's a mission no man can survive. He's the man for the job. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando. Let's party. Next is the movie's Arnold Schwarzenegger as Commando, a one-man army after his kidnapped daughter. Are you going to kill me or something? No. I suppose you wouldn't tell me if you were. Sure would. Really? Our next movie is named Commando, and it stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Rambo crossed with Superman. This guy is the greatest commando fighter who ever lived. Just to carry around the weapons that he uses, he has to be in great shape. <laughs> ever since Robert De Niro strapped on all those knives and guns and taxi driver, there's been an obligatory scene in a lot of violent movies where the warrior suits up for battle. And when Schwarzenegger is finished, he looks like a closeout sale at the weapons store. Pistols, knives, rifles, machine guns, grenades. And a portable rocket launcher. I expected to see a credit at the end of the film, Mr. Schwarzenegger's clothes provided by General Dynamics. <laughs> He's after the men in this movie who kidnapped his daughter. And in this scene, he tries to get help from Ray Don Chong in chasing one of the kidnappers through a shopping mall. The bad guy escapes, and Schwarzenegger and Chong finally corner him for a showdown in the hills above Los Angeles. He finds his daughter in the kidnapper's hideout, and that leads to a confrontation with a man who is his oldest and deadliest enemy. Commando was more of an action comic strip than a movie. The plot motivation is paper thin mm -hmm. in this film. Schwarzenegger, tough guy. Bad guys kidnap daughter. He'd blow him up real good. <laughs> this movie doesn't have the role. Probably the, the whole script. Right. There you got it. Right there was a real short script. <laughs> it's on the back of a small envelope. <laughs> this movie doesn't have the sophistication of Terminator, Schwarzenegger's last big hit, but it's an effective entertainment, and there are three reasons for that. First, the special effects action sequences do work. Second, the sense of humor that's provided in this movie by Ray Dawn Chong is very refreshing. She can't believe that all of this is happening to her. She provides a normal person in this strange comic world. And third, the dependable presence of Schwarzenegger is good. He's strong enough to carry a goofy movie like this in more ways than one. If I have a real objection to the film, it's the character of the villain who we saw there in the last scene who is... I think almost unmistakably presented as sort of a leather sort of homosexual guy. Absolutely, no question. Yeah. As if Arnold Schwarzenegger had to prove that he was a man by beating him, and there's something a little weird going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I have a couple more objections. I wish they had gotten to the commando sequences late or sooner. Uh, it's only like the last 20 minutes in the film. I wish he had put on the grease paint and the G.I. Joe clothes a little bit sooner. I think it would have helped the movie. It sags a little for me. The other objection is that when we do get the G.I. Joe sequences, I thought that some of those weren't as exciting as maybe a couple of the car chases that had gone on before. I mean, but what does he do? He blows up some buildings. We see him shot from four different angles. Blow, 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 blow. Blows him up real good. He blows him up real the good. One thing that, the one so thing I, I can't recommend the film. I, the Ray Dong Chong character is probably my favorite in the whole and film. And she was fun. The one thing I noticed in the film that was fun is the sentry in the tower. This is an absolutely obligatory scene. Yes. I saw the tower. I was waiting for it. The guy always goes, ah, and falls out. And yeah. I was happy to see that he made it right on time. Coming up next at the movies, a tribute to the original. All right. <laughs> Welcome to episode 32, Commando. Also, maybe subtitled, uh, Eating Isn't Cheating, but we'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get into that. Uh, this is, uh, like I said, episode 32 of the Cultural Futures Exchange. This is the place where we, uh, you know, examine different pieces of cultural ephemera, like like classic 80s movies like Commando, uh, music, TV, books, all that kind of stuff. Dive into the context and time that they came out, what's happened since, and our take on the future valuation of the item in terms of going long, going short, staying neutral. And that is what we do here. So uh, sounds like uh, Siskel and Ebert were sort of split on this movie, too. Yeah. You know, I didn't remember there. You know, I used to watch that show all the time. It was like my family, my mom, my stepdad, my whole family loved Siskel and Ebert. It was probably I don't know if it was still at the movies at this time or if it was Siskel and Ebert. But they uh, yeah, I, I did not remember them splitting on this, I would have assumed they would have just given it a thumbs down. I know they love Terminator, but obviously Terminator is a different kind of film than this. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was kind of surprising to me, but I could, you know, I could, I could see that. I think, um, I think both of their reviews are kind of insightful. And I was actually surprised by the comments on Bennett, the character, the villain, uh, you know, the homosexual character, but it, you know, it's hard to ignore. <laughs> get to. Yeah, uh, and other subtle. people, other people mentioned this at the time too, I guess. But yeah, this, we should mention, this is the 1985 film Commando and it was pretty much Schwarzenegger's follow-up to Terminator. I mean, there was also Conan the Destroyer, which is very forgettable, which we'll mention, but this was pretty much his, his follow-up. And it was also his first role where he had any significant dialogue. Like in Terminator, he has like, what? Fuck you, asshole. I'll be back. You know, a few lines. Your clothes, Conan, give them to me. Yeah, your clothes, give them to me, right? Uh, uh, Sarah Connor, is Sarah Connor home? Or whatever he says. And then and then in Conan, he just has that one speech about, you know, the lamentations of their women. And, you know, the, the, he, what is joy in life? He barely has any dialogue. So in this movie, he's like talking up a storm with the, you know, crazy one-liners for the first time. So. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, the, the reason I think we chose this one, too, is it kind of establishes a formula he would continue to follow through his most successful films of these kind of snappy one liners and the over the top action. And I think it's more over the top than even some of the movies that followed it. So it's well, kind of the perfect one. And it was by design too. the one liner thing, as you heard in the trailer, they were even featuring all these lines, which they knew were sort of like the snazzy, uh, snappy one line. Yeah, they take they have some of the best dot lines yeah. in the trailer, like in they, the trailer, they, right. they don't save them, although there's plenty more as we'll get through, go through. So what we're going to do, uh, I sh we should mention the the you know, as far as the conceit, right? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, the the conceit of the of the movie or the CFX. The CFX. I already went through that. Oh, I'm sorry. I I I sleeping through the intro. That's right, sleeping through the intro. I was too mesmerized by uh, <laughs> the, the 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 weird calypso synth yeah. uh, music soundtrack. Well, but, that's you know, understandable. I, it's just because I always jump the gun and forget to you yeah. know let you do that. But anyways, um, so. So, yeah, I mean, the way this is going to go is we're going to, you know, typically go through our personal histories, uh, the basic plot and the major characters, you know, so you know what this movie is if you've never seen it. And if you've never seen it, it's like 91 minutes. Just go watch it. Yeah. It's like a quick watch. And it's, um, you know, we'll we'll get to whether we think it's good, worth watching or not. Uh, but, you know, to, before you listen to the podcast, it might be good to watch it. But we will be going through it extensively. So we'll go through the zeitgeist that surrounds it. We'll go into a little bit of the background. Um, we'll go into, you know, um, we'll, and then we're going to do a whole walkthrough of the film uh, with Jeff kind of leading the way and me chiming in. And then we'll do our evals right at the end. So that's right. the way this is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and we'll we'll play some uh, funny stuff along the way. So um, let's personal histories. Mine's pretty short. I think I, I uh, saw this movie on cable. I don't think I saw this particular one in the theater, although I did see the subsequent movies in the theater, um, including a total recall scene with one, uh, slip, yeah. uh, when we were in college. Um, I did, uh, re let's see, I I've seen this movie probably 10 times in my life, uh, at, at various times, all on, you know, cable or streaming and stuff like that. Um, as far as his other movies I saw, um, I pretty much watched all of them up until, um, and through Total Recall, when we get into all of the last action hero and all that uh, eraser and all that other shit, it just got to be terrible. And I just, you know, stopped watching them. I don't think I've even seen all of Last Action Hero or any of those. So for the most part, my history with Arnold is and the movies was was that. And then, of course, when he was governor of uh, uh, my home state of California. Uh, that was interesting, and and all of the other stories about Arnold that have come out over time are sort of somewhat some sad, angry, some are amusing. We'll get into uh, all of that, but uh, that's my history. So it's short and sweet. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, mine's a little more detailed just because I decided to take the approach of kind of going into the history of my history with Arnold because I have a interesting history with Arnold because I'm actually really interested in his bodybuilding stuff too. So. Uh, but my history starts with Conan, you know, obviously that was the first, I had never heard of pumping iron or stay hungry. We're going to talk all about that stuff. We'll refer to it, but I'd never heard of his early stuff that he had done in Hollywood. And I, I did not really know about, you know, his bodybuilding, you know, how, why he was like, probably was, and maybe still is the greatest bodybuilder who ever lived. Um, it's certainly the most successful one. Right. And he, um, you know, but but his first, the first time he cropped up on my radar was Conan the Barbarian. You know, this is one of those movies where it was rated R. It was a fantasy film, kind of like Excalibur. Well, I just wanted to see it so badly, yeah. you know, and I couldn't because I was it was rated R. I eventually saw it on cable. You know, I'm a huge, actually a huge fan of Conan. It's the only kind of comic book thing I care about. I have like a huge nerdy collection of my bookcase back there, a whole shelf full of all the comics, uh, you know, the books and the original Robert E. Howard books and all this stuff. And I've got like 
you know, original weird tales copy that I spent like 50 bucks on, you know, that has a cover of Robert E. Howard from like 1929, you know, I'm like a, a huge Conan nerd. So Conan was a big deal to me, even though I don't think the movie actually lives up to what it could have been. And really, there's never really been a great Conan movie, but this is probably the best they'll ever will be. And it was the first appearance of Arnold. And obviously, and then I saw the Terminator, but I didn't see that until on cable and it blew me away. I still think the Terminator is one of the best sci-fi films, like underground sci-fi films of all time. Wasn't, and, wasn't he in like Hercules in New York before? Yeah, so he was in Hercules in New York in 1970. I'll be getting into that okay. in history. Now, okay. I never saw, I didn't see Hercules in New York. I don't think I've seen the whole thing ever, but I didn't even see part of it until later, right? It. It's like okay. that movie did not. That was his first film role, and he's actually dubbed in that film. He doesn't do the, the well, voice. Well, his first film role that was released, there may have been some uh, reels that... Uh, oh, people- yeah, yeah. We'll get into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, there might have been some extra extra kind of private filming he did yeah. um, for very, uh, very uh, illustrious clients. Um, so anyway, Terminator was a big deal. And then I remember I saw Commando. Now, I don't remember if I saw it in the theater originally or not, but I've seen it on cable many times, probably not as many times as Jeff, who this is Jeff's choice. Yeah. Jeff loves this movie. So, um, uh, well, in a way, we'll see. We'll see when his eval comes, what what he thinks. But uh, I remember one of the things is my friend Brad was really into driving. Unfortunately, he drove himself to death. He got in a car accident. It was very tragic when, when we were in our early 20s. Um, but he was really into cars and stuff. And he would always talk about the scene where they crash into the t- telephone pole or whatever, the tree, and they don't move. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're they're not really wearing seatbelts. And even if they were, you would see some movement, but they're like, so, and he was just, we would just laugh at that scene and we would totally laugh at this movie, um, you know, at all the one-liners and stuff. And, you know, it was super entertaining to us. And I remember watching it on cable. I also remember seeing the kind of low budget follow, you know, obviously we saw predator came out and that was a big deal. And yeah. I saw that in the theater, red heat and raw deal. I think I just saw on cable. Uh, and then, um, running man is also written by the same screenplay writer who wrote, uh, Commando, Stephen D'Souza, and it is a masterpiece. I think it's like probably my second favorite Arnold film of all of them. Maybe third, maybe after Terminator, T2 is up there. Not as big of a fan of T2 as most people. I I like it. I just don't like the, the Edward Furlong. I find him really hard to watch. And, yeah, I um, agree. And, and, you know, I really like the original Terminator more. But in the top five is Running Man. You know, and obviously that features a a, a former uh, star of a CFX episode, which is Richard Dawson, who's amazing in the film. And, and Running Man takes the takes the um, one-liner, uh, crazy one-liners that are established in this film to even hot, greater heights or greater lows, depending on your perspective. What um, happened to Chainsaw? Yeah, to split. Oh, yeah. Or like, uh, <laughs> here is Sub-Zero. Now plane Zero. <laughs> so good. So good. Um, at any rate, you know, uh, and then and then it, the best film I think Schwarzenegger ever did is the one me and Jeff saw. So I remember we went to the theater and I remember waiting in line on opening night. You know, we, yep. we, we saw it and... Uh, I think we were both pretty much blown away by this movie. It's uh, it's got the kind of, uh, you know, funny, goofy Arnold performance, but it's, you know, it's got Philip K. Dick. It's this great sci-fi twisty 
classic and it's it still holds up i think um you know and i saw t t2 and i've seen t2 a bunch of times you know and i you know i was initially kind of blown away by it but i i still think t1 is better and then um you know i in the 90s again i saw last action hero in the theater and i saw batman and robin in the theater which i will be talking about because if if any movie uh, takes the one-liner uh, thing to the extreme and way too far. It is that film. Uh, and we'll talk about how much Arnold made on that movie for his uh, uh, portrayal of Mr. Freeze. And then, of course, I remember uh, the prank calls that, uh, that came up with the Arnold and uh, Al Pacino prank calls uh, in the early 2000s, which were really funny. And I remember, of course, he ran for governor. You know, And I was uh, very much on the side of against him. Uh, not that not that any of us were crazy about Gray Davis, uh, but <laughs> I think um, I think, uh, you Davis. know, Gray Davis, not yeah. not the greatest governor. But again, um, at any rate, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, and I was scandalized by by all the stories of sexual harassment, which we'll get into a little mo- bit more. But my latest uh, foray into Arnoldness is, uh, you know, his history as a bodybuilder. I mean, that's a hobby of mine. I don't look like I lift weights very much but i do and um you know obviously i'm interested in that whole history and and i've gotten interested in his background in that and it's really a crazy story and of course i've seen pumping iron and uh which is a quote-unquote documentary it's not a real document it's very very staged kind of more like a reality show kind of thing but it's really a fun watch and interesting and you know i've i've learned all about his history and stuff and i find it really interesting i try I'll, i'll try not to go too much into the bodybuilding history but i got to cover it a little bit because it's in you know it's uh integral to him becoming a film star so he parlayed that into that so anyways that's my history so that said let's get into the the, the basic summary of the film and the major characters you want to take that or yeah you want me to, yeah i'll right, take cool. it you could chime in so yeah uh schwarzenegger plays a guy named uh john matrix who is a <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> dude i'm sorry that name john yeah. matrix john matrix uh the guy who used to name the elvis characters in the elvis movies got yeah. a work naming that's totally an elvis name yeah. man. uh john matrix is a retired u.s army colonel uh who's part of an elite of course elite green beret style fighting force he's retired and living in mount on mount baldy in uh, southern california with his uh you know his daughter who goes by the name of Jenny? Uh, yes, Cheney, 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 Cheney. Matrix is uh, informed by his uh, his former commander, Major General Kirby, that the members of his former unit are all being killed. Um, and this is around this time, uh, you know, the bad guys come uh, for Matrix and kidnap his daughter. We'll talk about all this in detail. Um, the leader of this uh, rat, ragtag uh, bad guy group is uh, Arius, a, a South American dictator of Val Verde, which we'll get into much more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get into much more. Uh, who wants to, Matrix to, to kill the new president of his country or going to kill his daughter, of course. Matrix is put on a plane but escapes. At the airport, uh, he kind of kidnaps, really, a flight attendant uh, played by Radon Chong. We'll get into that. Named Cindy. Uh, who is being harassed by one of uh, Arius' stooges, Sully. Um, Matrix, uh, you know, goes on to kill him and other bad guys. They, uh, you know, start to strike back against the bad guys, uh, you know, using all sorts of weapons that you heard uh, provided by General Dynamics, Gene Sisko with the 
with a quip about that, uh, his wardrobe being furnished by General Dynamics. Mm-hmm. They didn't fly in a seaplane to uh, to kind of a fantasy island. Uh, if you're into you know military, well, they home- used the same airplane as Fantasy Island, yeah. the Grumman. I don't know. If, I don't think it was the same exact plane, but it's the same model. It's one of those planes uh, that's like uh, you know lands on water. But if you're into if you're into like uh, militaristic homoeroticism, it is a Fantasy Island for you. <laughs> that's uh, true. That's um, true. Matrix, of course, you know, uh, kicks ass, rescues his daughter, and uh, everybody is happily ever after. Again, we'll get into all these details and then some. Uh, the cast. Do you want to talk about the cast of this uh, uh, film? Right. So obviously, this this uh, starred Arnold Schwarzenegger as John Matrix, uh, Ray Don Chong as Cindy, kind of the um, damsel in distress part. Uh, a very young Alyssa Milano in her one of her first roles. Um, I think this is even pre Who's the Boss or yeah, she's, the time she's of like the a boss. twelve, um, thirteen year old girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan Hedaya as President Arius, um, and obviously. Unless it's pronounced Don Edaya, uh, he's not <laughs> Latino. And the other thing that's funny is Arius is not a very Latino name. No, uh, it sounds like a Roman uh, emperor. Um, and then you have Vernon Wells. Okay, this is the the one of the most inspired pieces of casting here. This is Vernon Wells as Captain Bennett. Um, he was the first choice. Uh, to play the role because he was in Mad Max 2, which is known in the United States and most of the world, I think, is Road Warrior. Um, and, you know, he he basically, uh, Mark L. Lester, the director, thought he was the only uh, one who could kind of play against Schwarzenegger. Um, and then uh, he added that Bennett, Bennett was in love with Matrix, but he hated him too. He wanted to kill him, but he was in love with him. We'll get way more into that. Because yes, we will. As, as, Roger Ebert so astutely pointed out there is a homoerotic subtext to this movie that cannot be denied. Um, and yeah, it basically uh, what's funny though, is the original role was going to be the role was originally going to be played by Gene Simmons of uh, kiss, <laughs> yeah, which, which sounds crazy, but Gene Simmons was really trying to get into acting. If we ever do our eighties kiss episode, we'll talk about how mad Paul Stanley was at Gene Simmons. Cause he was not interested in kiss at this time at all. He was trying to get acting roles and he's in this movie. I really love called runaway. Did you ever see this? No, I haven't the runaway. It's basically a movie where um, it stars Tom Selleck as this cop in the future. And Gene Simmons is this mad scientist who makes these weird little spidery robots that do his bidding and kill nice. people. And it's, it's super entertaining. And Gene Simmons of course is making his Gene Simmons faces throughout the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's can, also in another can, movie. Oh, can go you ahead. imagine, can you imagine though, like instead of dressed in the, you know, the Bennett sort of uh, outfit. He's in the assless chaps from, you know, that, uh, uh, what is it? Heaven. T- what's uh, what's that kiss video that I was talking about? Uh, in the, the heavens on heavens fire. on fire, heavens yeah. on fire, the assless chaps. That would have been the outfit for him to wear in this movie. Had he been cast? Yes. Yes, totally. And, and it's funny. He's he also his other infamous role is in this movie called, I believe it's called Too Young to Die. I'll have to correct that in the notes or something. He basically plays a transvestite villain. Yeah. And the the main character is played by John Stamos. This is a cult classic. We'll probably have to cover at some point. Um, at any rate, then you have some minor roles. You know, James Olsen plays Major Kirby. Uh, wait, wait, you have- so, sorry, I just got to say one more thing about uh, Paul Stanley being angry that Gene was off making movies. He actually wrote um, a song about that, the only uh, living girl in Los Angeles. 
So that was his version <laughs> of, of the, That's the right. Paul it's Simon like it, song. He was inspired by in the last Paul Simon. Yeah, 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 Simon so, song about our Garfunkel. That's yeah, really hilarious. I yeah. did not know that fact. So that's another thing we're going to have to go. reach back and cover in our 80s episode on Kiss because we got to do go. that. Yeah. Um, and then a really good, uh, a couple of really um, nice uh, side uh, kind of characters. Um, David Patrick Kelly, who would later kind of become famous for uh, playing, uh, you know, what's his name? Horn's brother. I forget his the, the first Leland Horn, I think. I'm not sure his name, but he's in Twin Peaks. He yeah. plays a character in Twin Peaks and he's almost the he looks the same and acts the same as that character in this movie. Uh you have the great Bill Duke uh playing Cook, uh great black exploitation actor. Um, and then some other minor, I'm not gonna go into all of them, but there is a uh, an appearance by Bill Paxton. Game over, the, man. Yeah. And then uh there's Ava Cadell as the girl in the hotel room, which, you know, as a young, young lad, that was one of my favorite parts uh, yeah. for obvious completely, reasons. Completely yeah. superfluous, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, gratuitous nudity. Gratuitous um, nudity, yeah. All right, so let's set the zeitgeist for this movie. So what's the zeitgeist? Well, it's an action movie, right? I mean, yeah. and action movies go back to the beginning of movies. You have one of the first uh, sensations uh, the short film of The Great Train Robbery in 1903 is an action movie. People were actually frightened by what they saw on the screen. They saw a gunshot and they would, thought it was real. You know, they didn't know. Um, and then you even have in the 20s, you have the swashbuckling movies that, uh, you know, are in this tradition. Douglas Fairbanks in The Great Thief of Baghdad. In the 30s, you have the other a new action hero, Errol Flynn, who is in a, uh, many swashbuckling movies, but most notably in the great 1936 uh, movie of Robin Hood. Um, you even have Hitchcock doing action movies, you know, the 39 steps and later North by Northwest. Uh, one of the greatest action movies of all time, maybe the greatest in 1954, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, yeah. uh, which influenced movies like this with its great battle sequences. Obviously one of the hugest stars of all time is an action star, John Wayne, you know, he was in Westerns and stagecoach and uh, all the way from the thirties until the, you know, mid seventies. Now what's the biggest influence though, on this kind of film where you have one guy kind of a one man army fighting this, uh, you know, cabal of enemies and he's spouting out one liners. It's James Bond, right? James yeah. Bond is the main influence. You can hear even one of the one liners that's in a, uh, mentioned in the trailer about my friends just dead is actually a complete ripoff of the same line that James Bond says about a woman in diamonds are forever. He says, Oh, she's just dead. You know, at the, you know, when he's dancing with her and she, he spins her around and she gets shot by the assassin rather than him. You know, it's a complete cop of that. Um, also in the seventies, you have Hong Kong martial arts come into play with Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. Um, and then you have two really um, action action heroes uh, that really kind of embodied a lot of what Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone would be influenced by in the 80s as Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson. And these these guys kind of pioneered the one-man army kind of movie. That's what, you know, as Siskel says, this is a one-man army. And, you know, there are obviously war films, but in Commando, it's just, and Rambo, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's just one guy fighting a whole army, right? And so you have movies like Dirty Harry and, uh, you know, you Walking Tall with Joe Don Baker, the great revenge uh, film. He's from uh, Fletch fame, if you... Oh, recommend. yeah, he's in Fletch. Okay. Yeah. He's also in a movie I love called... Uh, um, shoot. Uh, Joysticks. 
which is a video game exploitation movie of the 80s. It's super great. Um, and then Death Wish, right? Charles Bronson, Reeking Vengeance. And of course, he would make many sequels of that film and Dirty Harry would have sequels as well. Obviously, in the 80s, you have Stallone and Schwarzenegger uh, as the main purveyors of the one-man army. There are some B-rate, you know, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and these others. But these two guys were the box office, uh, you know, champions here. And obviously Stallone is the quintessential one in Rambo. And it's funny because Rambo and Commando were out around the same time. And they're almost the same movie in a lot of ways, even though Rambo is rooted in, you know, Vietnam, I guess, uh, the... the um, What's the what's the word when you want to retell something? Uh, I'm 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 losing uh, my mind here. It's basically um, revisionism, right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, what, trying to win the Vietnam history, War, in, yeah, yeah. right? Revisionist history, right? Yeah. So obviously, that revisionist history is also part of this. You have a lot of movies in the '80s where, you know, in the '70s when we made movies about Vietnam, they were almost always about how bad it was. In the '80s, it was about going back and and redressing the you know basically winning the war that we lost you know you had movies like missing in action with chuck norris and rambo and commando isn't that commando is more about maybe nicaragua or something yeah you know uh it's 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 more modern but it's it's similar and it's funny because you know in old war movies it was a bunch of guys fighting right you had movies like the great escape uh, Stay like 17 it was it was prisoners revolting together as a team but in the 80s it's like one dude you know, and that's kind of the way it is. Now, we also should talk about the um, the homoeroticism of these movies. You know, obviously you have these guys, Rambo, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Schwarzenegger are completely greased up here. I mean, we'll talk about one particular, particularly egregious scene later in Commando that is superfluous and has no purpose whatsoever, except to show off Schwarzenegger's, uh, you know, rippling uh, biceps and pecs. Um, but there's a definite fetishism of the male physique where there wasn't in previous days. I mean, you had people like Bronson and, and Clint Eastwood who worked out, you know, they weren't big, but they were, they were fit, but you didn't really see them shirtless all the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, they just look like fit athletic guys, whereas Schwarzenegger and, and Stallone, you know, they, uh, gobbled steroids and became huge among other things, you know, Yeah, among other things like growth hormone. It's still you know, Stallone's still taking that stuff and it hasn't killed him yet. So, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, that's kind of, and and that's kind of what led to today, right? I mean, we'll talk about the, that in our evals, but obviously these movies had a huge impact on, you know, the, the viewing of the male physique today, every, you can't be an action hero in a movie and not be complete, completely shredded now. Well, one thing yeah. I want to do, mention about that particular topic is that when we were in college, we accidentally discovered this great, great book called Cruising the Movies um, by a guy named Boyd McDonald. And the way we discovered this uh, is I, I, we were, I don't know, we, <laughs> you have it. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah it's Slipper's, on Amazon, dude. I ordered it because yeah. I knew we were going to have to cover this in some, we, some We're going to cover this book yeah, at yeah. some point in detail because it's yeah. so amazing. But yeah. we discovered this book. It was we went to the library one time just to study. I know one night in college, and I think I I saw it in the in the bathroom or something like that. I was like sitting there, and I picked it up and I was looking at it, and I brought it back out, and we started going through it. And it's one of the funniest, most brilliant sort of you know, uh, it's, it's almost like a pay into you know homoeroticism in, in movies and TV. 
written by this journalist, um, Boyd McDonald, um, a very, very gay man who's very proud of that and, and very into a lot of the kind of uh, stars, especially old Hollywood stars that you were mentioning, the Burt Lancasters and, and stuff like that. So I'm not, we're not going to go into this book because a whole episode of CFX is undoubtedly going to be um, devoted to this uh, amazing piece of work. But anyway, it, th- this was something that um, was not just noticed by us, in other words, right? Yeah, it's like it's kind of like the celluloid closet for perverts because it's like he's basically getting off on the most innocuous things, just weird and camera angles and stuff. He really yeah. fed it. But you got to think he didn't. Where was he to go for that kind of thing? You right. know, it was so uh, put under the covers. Right. So. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, this movie will be talking about that in detail as we go over the film. But before we do that, let's just do a quick background of a few of the principles involved. Um you know, obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger is the main guy here, right? And he's the star. Um, he um, he's the reason the movie was was essentially bank, uh, you know, uh, bankrolled. Right. Uh, so so he was born in uh, 1947 in Tall Austria to parents Gustav and Aurelia, and he also had an older brother Meinhard. Now Meinhard would die in a car accident in 1970, so he you know, wasn't around much after that. Um, but what's funny is uh, there's this whole thing about was Arnold's dad a Nazi? Uh, he was in the actual police and he was a brown shirt before the war and he actually fought in Stalingrad. So I think the answer is pretty much yes. Oh, 100% um, he was. And the funny thing is Arnold tells in his autobiography, Total Recall, which I've read, um, he talks about the family Bible. So they had a Bible. But they also had this other book that him and Meinhard actually pretended was a Bible. And what it was, was this giant book, this big book full of colorful pictures. And it was this kind of thing where you would buy the book and it was blank and it would have these numbered pages. And you would go in and buy some product in the, in the drugstore and they would give you, every time you bought something, they'd give you another page and it would have the number and you would paste it in. Well, what these pictures were was basically pictures of brave Nazi fighters on, uh, you know, on the front lines or, you know, giant uh, rallies or, you know, maybe some brown shirts g- uh, gleefully kicking in a Jewish uh, storefront. You know, I mean, it's like and these these kids would treat this like a Bible. So Arnold may not have been a Nazi himself, but he certainly, you know, used their pictures as a Bible. So that ought to tell you something. I mean, we'll, we we might get more into that a little bit later because he, you know, he did do a lot with Joe Weider, who was Jewish, and he had a lot of Jewish uh, friends and stuff. And, you know, he fought for the Weizen, you know, he did stuff for the Weizen Paul Center, but he was also friends with Kurt Waldheim, who was, you know, had a notorious Nazi past. I mean, how, you know, Americans embracing Nazis is not a new thing. Um, you know, obviously we did that with the rocket scientists. stuff. So that's, that's yeah. kind of the elephant in the room there. Now, now, when, you know, obviously the first thing Arnold got into was bodybuilding and he was really strong and just amazingly gifted. I mean, he was like benching 520 pounds when he was like 15. I mean, he's just crazy strong. This is even before steroids, you know, he would eventually take steroids like they all did in the seventies, but he got really big without them. Uh, you know, he served in the Austrian army when he was younger, that was a requirement. And then he eventually would go on to start winning bodybuilding contests. Uh, you know, he won, he won Mr. Austria. He, he eventually won Mr. Universe. Um, he was known as the Austrian Oak just for his giant size. 
Um, he started his own mail order business when he started, you know, he started winning Mr. Olympia, which is the main bodybuilding contest. He would eventually win it seven times and that would be the record until the nineties. So he won quite a lot of, of those. He was quite a successful bodybuilder, but he was also really smart in business. And he started a mail order business for his bodybuilding. He also got into real estate and just got bigger and bigger. He'd buy apartment buildings and he was already a millionaire before he even made his first movie. Um, so he was, he was a really smart guy. Uh, in business. So his first movie he made, well, not his first movie, maybe his, his first real movie. Cause yeah. his first movie was Hercules in New York in 1970, where he was billed as Arnold strong and all of his dialogue was dubbed. It's a very bad movie. If you've ever seen it, um, not really watchable, just really amateurish, uh, incompetently made. Um, but he did get another bit part in the long goodbye, which is a Robert Altman, Altman film, but his first major role was stay hungry, which is a Bob Rafelson film starring, um, Jeff Bridges and, and Sally Field. And what was interesting, Arnold was about 250. You know, he's in peak bodybuilding condition and Rafelson made him lose 40 pounds because he worried he would just dwarf the other actors uh, to such an extent that it would be awkward. But he played a bodybuilder named Joe Santo in that film and he won a Golden Globe as Best New Star. He got some acclaim for his performance. Uh, after that, he did the film Pumping Iron and there was a book Pumping Iron as well. Um, you know, he gained all his weight back and won Olympia. Again, it's kind of a pseudo documentary, but it's got an, it's a pretty entertaining film. I mean, you see him smoking marijuana famously in that film and he's just kind of under, you know, he's playing psychological mind games with Lou Ferrigno. It's really entertaining. He also got bit parts in streets of San Francisco, which is actually really cool. If you look on YouTube streets of San Francisco, maybe we'll link to this one. Uh, he actually plays a bodybuilder who goes crazy and chokes a woman. And they're, you know, of course, Michael Douglas and uh, Carl, Carl Malden are after him for that. Um, he also was in a, a B-rate movie called The Villain. Uh, around this time, too, he started dating a very famous woman, Maria Shriver of the Kennedy family. Um, in 1982, he made Conan the Barbarian uh, for Dino De Laurentiis and director John Milius. And this was a major hit and made him a huge star. Uh, he followed that up with Conan the Destroyer, which was a seek awful sequel to the film, uh, starring Grace Jones and Wilt Chamberlain as well. It's not very good, <laughs> um, to say the least. Um, and then he played the Terminator, right? So he got together with a brilliant young filmmaker named James Cameron and made this low-budget film. And what's really interesting about this film to me is if you look at the, our posters that were released for the Terminator, he's got top billing. Right. So he Schwarzenegger, it just says at the top. Right. So already he's making a name for himself and he's turning his German accent and his crazy name into an advantage. Right. I mean, that was one thing that was really shrewd about him is he was such an unlikely star. He could, you know, his 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 accent was so thick, but he turned those things to his advantage. And you know, he's got top billing as the, the villain of a movie. So he's not the hero. He's the villain. Right. Um, and this movie was made for six point four million. It would gross 80 million. So it was a massive success. Um, now, he did owe Dino De Laurentiis another movie. So he made Red Sonia with uh, Bridget Nielsen. And that's most notable because that was his first affair on Maria. He cheated on her throughout. Oh, their I doubt marriage. it was his first, but it's maybe of many, not his many, first, many, but many. one of many. But it's yeah. it's the first he admits to. I see. Right? So, um. Yeah, who knows, right? And then, and then, uh, Commando, right? He got so so for Terminator, he was paid seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But, but for Commando, by the way, later he would become an Eskimo brother with Flavor Flav. So that's uh... oh, that's right. That is so crazy, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, he he, you know, he made seven hundred and fifty k for Terminator, but he made he was already up to two million by Commando, right? Um, and he so he made Commando in eighty five. 
it was a decent hit. You know, it didn't make a ton of money. I, I think we'll talk. I might have more on the budget down in the production, but um, but it was you know it made probably about twice what it what it cost to make, maybe a little less. Um, it wasn't quite the hit that Terminator was, but it was a higher budget film and it was a hit. Uh, now post Commando, let's just quickly go through it. You know, um, obviously he got married to Maria Shriver and continued to cheat on her. Uh, he made another movie for De Laurentiis, Raw Deal, which is a pretty bad movie, but it is notable for having one of his craziest one-liners, which is. His wife throws a cake at him. She's mad at him. And he says, you shouldn't drink and bake. Um, <laughs> and then he made The Running Man. You know, here is Plane Zero. We talked about that. And Running Man also features Mick Fleetwood. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. And, um, and Dweezil Zappa, too. Dweezil Zappa. But, of course, yeah. Mick Fleetwood being an alumnus of our previous yeah. episode on Rumors. Uh, you know, and then he followed Daddy that up. Mick. Now, he made... He made some money on these Red Heat. He made and made some money on these minor films. Predator was quite a successful film in '86, um, but then in '88 he made Twins. And for Twins, instead of taking a salary, he took a cut. So he said, Arnold has said many times of all the movies he's made, he's made the most money on Twins. He's made about forty million just off that one movie because he took a cut of the profits in lieu of taking a salary. Uh, he would get paid, you know, uh, more millions, $12 million each for Kindergarten Cop and T2. Uh, I don't remember what he made for Last Action Hero, but that was a notorious bomb. So his, his movies were kind of declining in popularity. True Lies was a pretty big hit, but it wasn't his biggest hit. And then he made Batman and Robin. And for Batman and Robin, he got paid $25 million salary. He would also get paid that for... Uh, you know, a couple the the movies directly after that. Um, and he this movie has some of the worst one-liners in history. They're all puns on the cold. So you have like, let's kick some ice mm -hmm. and everybody chill. You know, it's really, really dumb. Uh, so that's basically Arnold. You know, we know the rest of the history. He eventually become governor of California. Now he's kind of retired and, you know, he has a social media presence, but, um, you know, when he's back in shape, he was out of shape for a while. He's back in okay shape for an old guy. He's almost, you know, pushing 80. He did have a heart condition and everybody speculates whether this was steroids. It actually wasn't. Um, he actually had a congenital heart condition that eventually required surgery. Um, That's the story going. he's telling anyway. Yeah. But I mean, you know, a lot of people take steroids. I mean, and he didn't, I don't think he ever took enough to, uh, yeah. Steroids is bad for your heart, everyone. So right. it's very bad for you and it can kill you. And you can see how many bodybuilders die now, but the levels of steroids they take now is way higher than what those guys were doing. So, and the other thing is a lot of, you know, Stallone took steroids his whole life. He's never had an issue. I think, I think, yeah, it could have made it worse, but there are, again, there are a lot of bodybuilders who live to be in their 80s who took steroids. So it's it just it's not good for you, but it's probably not the cause of his particular condition. So, OK, let's go into a couple of the other principles. Right. Stephen D'Souza was a screenplay writer here, and I think he's notable because Commando was his first major film, but he would go on to write what's probably the greatest, one of the greatest, uh, most renowned action movies of the eighties, which is die hard. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and this was kind of a blueprint for that. And interestingly enough, that was written for Arnold, which is crazy because you have Arnold being the hero against these German terrorists. That's really weird. But anyway, so, so uh, D'Souza started out writing for TV, wrote for the Hardy boys, mysteries, $6 million man, bionic woman. And he even wrote uh, for a short lived TV series based on the movie foul play. 
uh, starring our great Chevy Chase, who we'll get to, I'm sure, very soon. And Goldie Hawn. Um, and then, of course, you have, uh, uh, you know, he was a producer of Knight Rider, and he wrote his first major screenplay was 48 Hours. Uh, so that was his breakthrough. But then he wrote Commando, right? And after Commando, he would go on to write the equally wonderful Running Man, you know, Die Hard, Die Hard 2. He wrote Hudson Hawk, for which which is supposedly one of the worst movies of all time. I've seen part of it. I couldn't get through it. I thought it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, he won the Golden Razzie for that. Uh, somehow he escaped getting the Golden Razzie for the Flintstones, mm. Beverly Hills Cop 3, Judge Dredd, <laughs> uh, the original, not Dredd, the good one, but Judge Dredd with Stallone, yeah. uh, and Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. So those are his other movies, but obviously mm. writing Die Hard was probably his major achievement uh, besides Commando. Now, the director, Mark L. Lester, uh, started out directing B-movies in the early 70s. His, some, among his first movies are Truck Stop Women from 1974. Of course. And Bobby Joe and the Outlaw from 1976. Uh, Jeff are you a fan of Linda Carter at all? Of course I am. You know I am. Okay, just look, Bobby. Look up. Bobby I know Jim. exactly. Yeah. I've looked okay. at it many times. <laughs> <laughs> so any Linda Carter fans out there, that's a must. How could you movie? not be a Linda Carter fan? Really, yeah. seriously. So then he directed. I mean, Bennett's not, but I am. Uh, right, so. right. So then he directed uh, in 1979. He directed his first kind of hit, which is a B movie called Roller Boogie, which I saw in the theater. Starring Linda Blair as a disco roller queen. Yeah. It is one of my sister's favorite movies to this day. It's really bad in a good way, you know, kind of similar to maybe this movie, we could argue, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, and Commando, he's really hit his stride here, you know, obviously with Commando, the one liners uh, are fast and furious. After that, he kind of went downhill. Um, oh, he also did a movie called Class of 1984, which is a cult film. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, starring Perry King, Michael, young Michael J. Fox, Roddy McDowell, and of course, Tim Van Pat Patton, who is also known for what? Uh, salami. Salami on but, the... But right. Perry King is also in a show Riptide. that... I, Riptide, I'll make you do it at some point. Oh yeah, we're I, totally going to do Riptide, dude. I uh, did not watch Riptide, <laughs> but I, I will watch it now because it's kind of one of those shows that I think maybe deserves a set. It was, it was a very unique show. Or maybe it doesn't. I've been watching it re somewhat recently, but we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> we'll yeah. Into well, that. the Riptide's like the perfect kind of thing for us to do. Yeah. Um, he also wrote, he also did the screenplay for the Stephen King movie starring Drew Barrymore, the adaptation of uh, Firestarter, which is a terrible movie. I, uh, I do but, want to say about Timothy Van Patten, you know, uh, Salami, obviously from the White Shadow show, will inevitably do, of course. But he also uh, went on to actually direct a lot of HBO stuff, like uh, yeah, like The Wire. The he directed Wire episodes and, of The Wire, Sopranos, Sopranos. Yeah, so he, yeah, yeah, so Salami. But he'll was always it. be Salami to me. So well, he plays a punker in Class of 1984. That okay? If you're going to make me watch Riptide, I'm going to make you do Class of 1984. Yeah, fair, that's fair. I saw Class of 1984 in a double feature with The Wall. It was like one of the best double features of all time. Uh, at any rate. Uh, Post-Commando, he did Armed and Dangerous in 1986, starring John Candy. The less said about that, the better. Class of 1999 in 1990, which was a sequel to Class of 1984. And let's just say by the 90s, he was making movies like 1993's Extreme D Justice, starring Lou Diamond Phillips, which mm. you can say straight to cable. Uh, that's pretty much what you're talking about. Now, probably other than Schwarzenegger, actually definitely other than Schwarzenegger, the most successful person to work on this movie is James Horner. James Horner uh, 
is a, uh, a film composer who went on to become one of the biggest film composers ever after doing this movie, right? He, he's made some of the biggest films of the last 30 or 40 years. Um, he's also notorious for being a ripoff artist, although I will say that almost all classical movie soundtrack composers do borrow from classical music, even the great John Williams. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of what the tradition of soundtracks, I, I think. It's just something they do. Uh, early on, he made a lot of B-movies like Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a star, uh, Roger Corman Star Wars ripoff. He made that uh, Oliver Stone's The Hand, where Michael Keaton's chased by his, uh, not Michael Keaton, but Michael Caine is chased by his own hand. Uh, Wolfen and uh, Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. His first major work of any note is the great Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, which I hope we'll get to at some point. It's one of my favorite movies. Great soundtrack. He also did the soundtrack for 48 Hours, uh, uh, Search for Spock, Star Trek Three, and Cocoon. And then after Commando, and, and it's funny, his, his music's always different, right? So yeah. he, uh, Star Trek Two is a very kind of um, bombastic classical score in the John Williams mold. And then you have Commando, which is this weird Calypso synth, uh, you know, yeah. tropical party, um, you know, very different. Now, post-Commando, he would do Aliens, the soundtrack for Aliens, uh, Willow, Hocus mm. Pocus, Braveheart, Titanic, for which he won the Oscar. He also won the Oscar for, he co-wrote my Heart Will Go On, the Celine mm. Dion mega hit. Uh, he Gross. did this uh, Beautiful Mind and one of another of the biggest movies of all time, Avatar. He also did The Amazing Spider-Man. Now he died in a plane crash, in a solo plane flight over Venezuela in, 19, which, uh, which is, in 2015. Um, which is near Valverde. So we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was wondering where Valverde was. I, 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 seemed to, I thought I knew most of the countries down there, but yeah, I guess right. not. No. Um, so yeah, uh, as far uh, we'll go into the production history in a little bit, but uh Jeff, why don't we uh talk about the clip you're going to play? Yeah, so there's this famous Access Hollywood interview that Schwarzenegger did on the on the set of Commando. Many of you probably heard it or or heard clips from it. I mean, it's been floating around uh forever. It was never it was never aired, of course, on Access Hollywood. Um, but it's been around the internet for since you know the earliest days. Everyone, most everyone has kind of heard parts of it, I think. So I'm just going to play it now and then we can talk about it a little bit. Good morning, everybody. This is Peter Gazinia from Access Hollywood. We're in sunny Southern California today on the set of Commando, a new movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we're on the way to his trailer to talk to the man himself. Yummy. Well, that hit the spot. I can do this all day long. Uh, oh my God, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry. We were told to come here right now. Sorry to, oh my goodness. Who are you? I, I'm, uh, I'm Peter Kazinia from Access Hollywood. I've seen you before. You're the asshole on TV. Yeah, well, I may be an asshole, but I don't know what your wife Maria Shriver is going to think about this. Eat. Not cheating. Eating's not cheating, huh? You really think your wife's going to buy that? My wife is fucking crazy. You're a psychopathic bitch. Look, Arnold, man, none of this is any of my business. We're just here to do an interview about Commando. We just saw a bunch of scenes being filmed. What do you say? Can we just do an interview now? I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. <laughs> That's funny. Actually, I want to ask you the questions. Would that be okay? I, I have to go to the bathroom. Excuse me. 
Oh my god, Jesus Christ, that's nasty as hell, man. What's the matter? What do you mean, what's the matter? You just took a huge nasty shit three feet from us with the door open. Oh, just doing my job. <laughs> Can we just please start this interview now, is that okay? Stop being such a pussy! Arnold, earlier today we saw a scene being filmed where you were wrestling around with the actor Vernon Wells, who seems to be playing a Freddie Mercury-type homosexual character. Is this an effort to continue to court a gay audience started in your Pumping Iron days? Exactly. Homosexual? Uh, I can only speak for myself. Nice. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with that, of course, and really savvy marketing to be certain. But there does seem to be an increase in the amount of fetishizing of the male physique in your movies. Lots of close-ups of your hypermuscular body. We saw you filming a scene where you're unnecessarily in a Speedo. Can we assume that you're responsible for this? Absolutely, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, homoeroticism. Go on. Well, the evil Freddie Mercury character, Bennett, seems to be in love with your character, Matrix. Is it an unrequited love, or do they ever have a relationship? I mean, after all, there doesn't seem to be a Mrs. Matrix. Hello, cutie pie. You lack discipline. Uh, Arnold, I see where this is going, but uh, i got to tell you, man, I'm a power top looking for a bottom. But I'm a quick learner. Uh, do you want to maybe come away on a vacation with me this, uh, this weekend, Arnold? Why not? Maybe someplace warm. I need to work on my tan anyway. Sounds good. Uh, what, about, um, what about going to Mexico? What do you think? I can practically taste the spina coladas already. Oh, great. Well, this is uh, Peter Gazinia from Access Hollywood signing off and headed to Mexico. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, so there you All go. Right. Is that famous Access Hollywood interview for those who haven't heard it. So easy to see why why it was never aired. I guess. Yeah. Well, wow. I I mean, look, you know, Arnold gets a lot of uh, flack for being, you know, kind of a rapey, gropey guy uh, with with women, famously. But he does have a history of you know kind of homoerotic stuff, uh, obviously in this clip, but. Uh, you know, before he was uh, famous in, in the bodybuilding world, there was a lot of, you know, uh, he, I think he did a lot of posing for gay magazines, uh, maybe some video uh, work. Um, there's even some articles that might suggest that or very early on when he first came to the U.S. that he was a, a bit of a rent boy, uh, too. Before he came to the U.S., he his first after winning uh, Mr. Austria, he had gotten a job. And actually, I think uh, doing uh, Mr. Universe in England, he came back to Munich, Germany, and he got a job working in a gym as a trainer. And he said the first night he got the job, he you know, the the his boss had put him up in his place. And of course, when Arnold came to his house, he kind of sat next to him really close on the couch and said, you know, wouldn't you be more comfortable in the bedroom kind of thing? So yeah. he was propositioned a lot. I mean, that happened a lot in bodybuilding for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, he had supposedly posed for some, uh, I know he, he had posed for a, a gay magazine in the late seventies as well. Yeah. And he had done some, some other stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's, you know, what, whether he uh, made a, some of his real estate investment money that way is another question. He doesn't really cop to that in Total Recall. That's about all he mentions. So yeah. kind well, of interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, this interview kind of shows maybe a different side of uh, Arnold there. So anyway, um, so filming locations. Uh, this movie was filmed uh, pretty much all in Southern California. Um, the island that we'll talk about where the, the bad guy areas hideout was uh, off the coast of Santa Barbara. Parts of this were filmed um, in San Simeon, which is famous for being where Hearst Castle is. 
Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, uh, Southern, uh, and that's not Southern California, that'd be Central California coast, uh, Hearst Castle, um, the house where the, you know, the main bad guy Arius lives on this island supposedly is actually um, the Harold Lloyd estate in Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills. Um, the car chase scenes are all over the San Fernando Valley um, in, you know, on Ventura Boulevard. And of course, uh, famous parts of the movie are in the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which we'll talk about, um, which is where Fast Times was filmed um, as well. So um, I think you mentioned this before, the uh, movie was supposed to cost $8 million, but wound up costing a million dollars more. Yeah, nine million, um, but I was wrong about how much it made. It actually made a lot, so it grossed fifty-seven point five million. Wow! Yeah, That's profitable. And, yeah, and very profitable. It was the twenty-fifth highest, you know, uh, grossing movie of nineteen eighty-five, and it was rated R. So that's, you know, it was like I think just in the top ten of rated R movies. So it's like back then, you know, obviously having an R rating meant you grossed less. That's I think one of the reasons they created PG thirteen around exactly. that time. Yep. And then there's actually a soundtrack for this album. It probably is not sitting in your LP collection, but do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit slope? Yeah. So, you know, they were, you know, obviously the soundtrack to this movie is notorious. It, it, it's got a crazy synth Calypso sound, uh, you know, a lot of steel drums in there, whether they're synthetic or real, I'm not sure. Um, and, you know, it's got some of these 80s soundtracks have a cult following. I'm a, actually a huge fan of John Carpenter's music and this kind of eight, super 80s synth music. But this one, I don't know if I'm going to reach out and buy this one. Um, it was released as a, a limited edition in 2003. Um, and yeah, it's it's very, uh, I guess, similar to what Horner did in 48 Hours. You know, it's kind of that same synthy action thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's uh, another limited edition was released in 2011. Um, you know, and, and the, the funny thing is um, We Fight for Love. Right. Is a song by Power Station, which, of course, is the end credit song. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that in in our walkthrough uh, that was, uh, you know, co-written by Michael DeBar and Andy Taylor. Mm. Um, and of course, Michael DeBar, we know him from uh, what? WKRP. Right. He was yeah. in, in the scum of the earth as part of the Hoodlum Rock episode. And, you know, he was also the lead singer of Power Station after Robert Palmer left. So. All right. Let's do it. Let's go through the film. Okay, so we're going to walk you through the film. Needless to say, spoiler alert, all over the place. If you haven't actually seen the movie, now is the point where you want to go and, and watch uh, this gem. It's all over streaming and cable, and you know you can find it pretty much everywhere uh, movies are played. Um, okay, so the, we, talked, we talked a little bit about the background of the movie and the high-level plot, but we're going to kind of go through it a little bit. And the movie opens up, with the bad guys, uh, the, the men hired by Arias, starting to kill uh, Matrix's team. So um, the, the first scene is this dude wakes up in bed with his wife, uh, hearing um, you know the garbage truck outside making a bunch of noise, and like, oh, we didn't put out the, the trash yet. And one of the funny things was is the wife in, the, in bed when she wakes up, she has like full makeup on. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's, it's, it's like so ridiculous, like full full on like lipstick and, and face makeup and eye makeup. Cause of course that's how most uh, women go, you know, to bed with full makeup on um, the, the bad guys who show up to uh, kill this guy um, as he's uh, pulling out the trash to the curb. It, one of them is Bill Duke who plays cook. 
The other is a guy who's never named in the movie. But what's funny is as the trash truck is pulling up to murder them and, and the two bad guys are on the back of the trash truck with their guns out, they're both wearing masks, you know, as they're rolling through this neighborhood. And right before they kill this guy, they, uh, Bill Duke pulls his mask down to shoot the guy. And, and the guy doesn't really look like much of a former soldier, which is pretty much true of all the former soldiers, including, uh, uh, you know, Bennett, which we'll get into. But um, anyway, I, I just thought it was bizarre. But you wanted to talk yeah. about this one, too. Well, the other thing is I might have mixed these scenes up because there's a car dealership scene. But there's also another scene that we should mention where it's it's kind of a bait and switch that's kind of clumsily done. So basically, we see Bill Duke, but we also see Bennett on this kind of tugboat. Right. I, and he's pulling the boat out and then they blow up the boat. So it's made to look like he's killing Bennett. Right. But we do, and I think that's for, um, you know, Kirby to report to. That's right. Uh, to, to, to Matrix that Bennett is killed to kind of hide the fact that Bennett's in on it. But it's really done in a weird way. And then obviously we get to the next guy who gets killed, right? Right. So there's a, um, so Cook, played by Bill Duke, goes into a Cadillac dealer um, <clears throat> on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, uh, Cassidy Cadillac, which is famous. I don't know if it's still there. And he goes into the showroom, gets into a Cadillac on, um, you know, the, the main showroom floor and is really interested in it. The sales guy, of course, is doing his uh, best, you know, hey, bro, this is the kind of ride you want to be you know, cruising around in. Uh, actually, it's, it's kind of racist. But um, Bill Duke, of course, starts up the car in the middle of the car dealership. Um, inside, which uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, you got you know a car in a car dealer that had the keys in it that you could start yeah. it up. Doesn't exist, uh, you know. Um, so he starts up the car. Would they have gas in the tank? No, I mean they like, might have gas in it, but the, the, the you, car you key can't be in it. Yeah, but like I think leaving gas in a gas tank idle is actually bad. It changes chemistry, so you won't you don't want to do that. It's actually dumb. Like if it's just in the showroom, that wouldn't be the one people test drive. Obviously, right? right. They're, they're outside. So it's a. And the other thing I should say about this scene is all of these killings are not low profile at all. I, I like know. like you think they'd want to be more stealth. Like all they want to do is basically demonst- is basically start killing these guys to get Matrix to kind of pull him into the, into the situation or get him involved. Right. And they could do this in a very low pro, you know, you could go in someone's house and, you know, slit their throat or whatever, but instead you pull up a noisy garbage truck. The guy clatters his garbage can down the street. You blow him away in the middle of uh, everyone to see in broad daylight. And then you go to a car dealership. That's even worse. You know, you're like crashing a car through. I mean, that's a theme that will come up over and over again in this movie. When something's done, it has to be done completely over the top. Like right. nothing is subtle. And, and that's not the way these guys would actually do something like this, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he he starts up the car and, the, and, the, and essentially uh, drives out of the car dealer window the, through the front window. And this car runs over the sales guy, killing him, and is peels off down Ventura Boulevard. Uh, to your point, this isn't the way to uh, sort of operate stealthily um, yeah. in Los Angeles while you're, you're doing your, your, your job. But anyway, after this, we cut to uh, the Matrix home life, uh, you know, opening credit kind of scenes with him and his, uh, his daughter. Jenny. And uh, so we first see Arnold walking down a hill carrying a tree trunk that weighs like a thousand pounds slung over his shoulder, like he, as I, like it's a baseball bat. I mean, like, and it's not even like 
he's power lifting it or anything like that. It's just like slung over his shoulder. He's walking downhill on yeah, uneven yeah. terrain. It's so ridiculous. Whether he could, he might be able to put that over his head. I don't know, but not with one arm for sure. Um, and he certainly wouldn't be able to just carry it like that. I doubt it. Uh, but the other thing that we get in this scene is there's a close up of his bicep and it's completely oiled up. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you'll, that will be a recurring theme in this movie is closing in on Arnold's body parts uh, for, you know, titillation or whatever it is. Uh, well, the other funny thing about this tree, by the way, if you take a look at it, it's the worst looking fake tree ever. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like a tree. It's, it's pretty bad, especially in high definition. He's like, uh, this doesn't look like a tree. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it weighed like 30 pounds, but it's so ridiculous. And um, anyway, the opening credits are a lot of like, you know, father daughter kind of mo- montage uh, trying to show off Arnold's uh, soft side with a, you know, Alyssa Milano as, you know, 12, 13 year old girl. Um, and a lot of his uh, kind of uh, acting sitcom style uh, sort of thing. But you wanted to talk a little yeah, bit. About yeah. Yeah. Well. So so it opens with, you know, he's a he's taking the, the log. Right. And then the credits start and he sees uh, he holds up his axe and in the reflection he can see her. And he kind of reaches around and hugs her and he's smiling through all this. It's really goofy, right? Yeah, he is beyond goofy. Yeah. And, and then there's a scene of them eating ice cream together. And she, you know, it uh, says, Hey, here, dad, have a taste. And then she, you know, fakes him out and puts it on his nose. And of course he's like, ha, 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 you know, <laughs> laughing. Yeah. And then of course they're practicing martial arts together. He's teaching her the moves. You know, this will be yeah. some setup for later in the film, uh, you know, and then they're feeding a deer. Yeah, uh, you know, that is that. I mean, it's almost this is like Saturday Night Live shit. I it mean, is. it's like so it over is. the top. And then, of course, they're fishing together and, you know, they catch a fish and it jumps out of Arnold's hands. And of course, we get more, you know, uh, uh, joyous Austrian laughter, you know, and, yeah. then, and then they're playing in the pool together and dunking each other and splashing each other. And then that's the credits, right? It is what, what, you know, you could almost imagine like my life by Billy Joel playing over this, you know, it's kind oh, of yeah. like up with some buddies sort of right. uh, thing, except I guess father, daughter. Um, yeah. So we have the music with the steel drums, the Calypso stuff you talked about just going absolutely bonkers uh, during this scene, uh, during this clip. And then, the, you know, they're, they're uh, sitting uh, in the kitchen, um, going to have some food. And here's a clip that I want to uh, play. Now, why don't they just call him Girl George? It will cut down all the confusion, I think. Oh, Dad, that's so old. <laughs> so in this scene, uh, girl Arnold George. is girl is <laughs> looking at some kind of like teeny mag uh, yeah. that the daughter has, and and uh, obviously, uh, Culture Club was probably somewhat popular when they were filming this, and uh, uh, commenting calling him Girl George, which is uh, very, very interesting, right? Yeah. And they're like making, he like makes, she's making them sandwiches and they're having another father daughter moment. And of course, this is when Kirby suddenly shows, he sees a helicopter. And of course he's on guard because he's a trained soldier. Uh, He sees a helicopter show up and um, basically it's Kirby with a couple of soldiers who he wants, he wants to leave behind with Matrix and Jenny because of, you know, all of the different men getting killed. And of course he mentions Bennett. But then all of a sudden, Bennett is there. It turns out Bennett is alive and the and the men show up who and they almost immediately kill these two guards. Right. Because yeah. Schwarzenegger's like, are they good? And then, of course, Kirby's like, they're not as good as you. You were, John. You know, we're we're constantly being 
told about how Matrix is just the ultimate soldier again and again. And, um, you know, military fetishism. Right. And and this these two guys are killed almost immediately. One of them lasts a little longer. Um, You know, I also want to mention Arnold's wardrobe. So he's wearing this kind of rugged Henley shirt. You know, it's one of those uh, long sleeve kind of uh, round collar shirts with a button down in the front. And as the movie goes on, this thing gets torn more and more. So you get to see Arnold's, you know, greased up chest cleavage throughout the film. Like this is kind of a thing that happens throughout the movie. And he's wearing this the whole time. Um, Again, more of the homoeroticism. Yeah. The other there's also a line in there where one of the soldiers who Kirby leaves behind to help uh, protect Matrix very unsuccessfully, um, who's shot and Matrix says to him, it's like, uh, you know, something about, um, I could smell them downwind. How come you couldn't kind of thing? Cause he... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, really, really you're inside your house and you could, you could smell. It's so ridiculous. But anyway, um, the bad guys show up, Arnold, uh, you know, uh, goes into action. Uh, they, they steal, uh, kidnap Jenny and he has to, um, they leave a bad guy behind to say, Hey, uh, if you don't do this work for us, we're going to kill your daughter. Just, you better go along. And, uh, you know, Matrix says, no, I'm going to start killing the bad guys right now. He blows away the messenger. And then he goes to start to uh, get weaponized up to, to uh, you know, get the bad guys. He goes to his gun safe, which is like the size of a small house. And there's a, a keypad on it, which has a two-digit code. Not very hard to crack. <laughs> yeah, nice security, dude. Nice security. You know, uh, there's not very many Poor Jenny could have, would, probably would have blown her brains out eventually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It'd probably yeah. take about a half hour for her to go through all 100 of those uh, you know, mm. combinations there. Uh, when they, uh, you know, they initially, uh, you know, raid the house, um, they, they could have easily killed him, uh, you know, at all times. And of course he escapes. Um, the, the problem is that they're shooting everywhere. Uh, they're throwing stuff at him. They're blowing shit up. But at any point, Arnold could have been killed. And then their, the whole plot would have been foiled because the whole thing is they're trying to get him to do this very important job uh, for uh, Arius. And the whole thing would go to shit if there's like, oh, shit, we accidentally killed our, our guy who's going to go do this job. There's lots of the starting theme of this movie, which is a bunch of guys with guns standing around uh, to take on Arnold one at a time. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Kung Fu theater style. So anyway, uh, we start to get the main plot here is that uh, Arius has been uh, kicked out of uh, Valverde and he is trying to go uh, get uh, Matrix to go and kill the current president of Valverde, uh, you know, to overthrow the government so uh, Arius can get back in. Um, we, uh, see Sully, who you mentioned the character, make an appearance, uh, who is supposed to, uh, take, uh, Matrix, uh, to go down to Valverde with an, another character, Enrique, I guess is his yeah. name. Yeah. Who, who, uh. Yeah, he's he, like this sloppy schlub of a guy. You know, you have this guy, this human tank. Yeah. You know, just this muscle bound guy who's bigger than everybody else. And you give the, this kind of couch potato-y looking dude, uh, schlubby guy to escort him, you know, who he could easily overpower at any given time. It seems yeah. like. Yeah. yeah. He's dressed in his uh, Caribbean uh, outfit. Yeah. But anyway, they're going to, the, the whole plot point here is that they're going to send Matrix down to Valverde um, in, uh, with Henrique is this guy you just described for him to go carry out this, uh, you know, assassination. 
Um, and what he, uh, the funny, a couple of funny things here. One, they're sending him first class. So, you know, they, they're sending him to do this dirty job. They're at least sending him first class. They have him seated next to this guy who is his, you know, babysitter to take him down to Valverde. And uh, I want to play in what happens here. Excuse me, how long is the flight? We land in Valverde in exactly 11 hours. Thank you. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. So what had happened right before that is Arnold Schwarzenegger um, elbows the guy in the head, uh, breaks his neck with a, with a very graphic-sounding little click movie uh, uh, crunching sound, and then puts the guy's uh, Caribbean hat over his face uh, to mask the fact that he's now dead. And Arnold um, goes about getting off the plane here, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, but before I, we do that, I want to talk about uh, Dan Hedaya's performance. Yeah. Because we kind of glossed over the fact that, you know, the reason they want Arnold to go is because he was the one who installed the current democracy, you know, right. the Democratic president. And of course, Arias uh, overthrew Arias, right? So Arias wants him to, to go back uh, and undo what he did, essentially. And the funny thing is they picked Dan Hedaya to play this, who if he's Mexican, he's really not very Mexican. I mean, he actually uh, is worse than Charlton Heston in Touch of Evil. Charlton Heston <laughs> has a very notorious brown face performance yeah. in the 1957 Orson Welles classic as a Mexican police chief or police agent. Uh, and it's one of the things that people talk about as a flaw of the film and how ridiculous it is he plays a Mexican. Charlton Heston is fucking amazing compared to Dana Day. I mean, Dana Day is per, uh, pronunciation. Everything is terrible. Um, and uh, it's it's really, really funny. I just thought uh, that was what, and of course his name is Arius, which again, you know, as I mentioned before, is not the most, uh, it just doesn't sound Latin. Latino at all. No. So, well, the, a couple other things about Valverde I just wanted to mention here. So, one, this plane that Arnold is on is like a wide body 737 kind of plane, has probably like 300 people on it, and they're all headed to Valverde. It's an 11 hour flight to Valverde. It does seem like a very weird uh, vacation destination. Uh, for, you know, people to go to, you know, it's like a, the site of a recent government overthrow. There's a lot of, you know, revolutionary activity. Yeah, let's send hundreds of tourists down to this uh, primo gringo vacation destination now. It just seems really weird to me. And I, I was like uh, kind of wondering, you know, maybe, you know, what would be the slang for that vacation destination? You know, remember when we were kids, like Virginia had that whole vacation thing, like Virginia's okay, Virginia for lovers. lovers. Yeah. yeah. What would the Valverde one be? Like, you know, uh, Destino Primo, Primero. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Something like that. But you I, know, one, one thing that's cool about this whole thing is they do establish a deadline. Right. Yeah. So so you're saying it's 11 hour flight. So they're right. basically and obviously they don't have the phones in the plane or any of that stuff. Right. So it's like you have 11 hours to save your daughter is basically right. setting up the film. So that it's kind of a clunky way to kind of get things going. But once they have that 11 hours, that's kind of all you need for the rest of this movie to kind of work, work its its plot, you know. I'm just amazed at the economic transformation of Valverde from, you know, like a, a site of a lot of uh, revolutionary activity to, you know, this vacation destination within like a, a, a few short years. That's a pretty amazing 
uh, economic uh, turnaround, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's but that's Matrix's power. You know, he yeah. did all that. So he did all that, I guess. Yeah. He, he probably built the beach huts for all the tourists, too. Yeah, maybe. Um, and that's where that Calypso music has played, uh, you know, to great effect. Anyway, so if you haven't seen this movie or you haven't seen it for a while, you may recall that Matrix kills his handler, goes uh, while the plane is taxiing down the runway, goes into sort of like the bathroom area, goes down into the cargo area because he knows how to do all this, um, goes past a a Doberman in a cage, of course, because, you know, to have a Doberman in a cage Mm -hmm. and plots his way to sort of jump out of the plane as it's taking off. Now, this, if this doesn't sound ridiculous enough to you, and it, of course it, it should, because the plane is hurtling down the runway hundreds of miles an hour with just incredible wind forces, right, and sound and the engines and all that kind of stuff. He jumps, he, pull, he opens up the, uh, the cargo area door, crawls down onto the wheel well, depressurizing um, that area on the plane so when the plane actually does take off, um, it probably is a huge danger to the entire uh, right. uh, you know, uh, crew and all the passengers aboard that he has done this, but they never plane land safely, of course. Uh, I'm not going to talk about what probably happened to that poor Doberman. But uh, um, anyway, he's on the wheel well as the plane is going down the runway. Um, no, Just not even having to uh, really hold on for dear life. He's just kind of gently holding on to the wheel well because, you know, He's Superman, and he can hang on to the plane as it's uh, about to take off. The plane takes off, gets about 500, 600 uh, um, feet in the air. He jumps off, lands in a little pool of water, isn't even hurt, doesn't get wet. It's it's like a swamp, so there is water, but it's like three feet of water. Yeah, it's like three feet of water. It's like a little puddle. he He would pretty much be dead. Yeah, (laughs) but but he doesn't even, his legs don't even compress. He doesn't. He doesn't injure his legs at all. He just gets up and runs. He just he's gets like up and runs. Yeah. He doesn't even have. A, he doesn't even. Uh, you know, do the Bruce Lee thing where he's like, you know, looking at some blood on his, uh, you know, uh, his mouth or anything like that. He just like runs away. Uh, you know, starts running through the airport. Uh, you know, tagging a ride on various uh, vehicles that are, you know, driving around in the airport. Pretty poor airport security. No one's noticing this big, huge dude who's running around, you know, jumping on the back of fire trucks and stuff like that. So anyway, here we get into, uh, he gets into the airport from all the tarmac stuff, and he's looking around for Sully, who, as you may recall, dropped him and Henrique's off, got them on the plane, and uh, is trying to figure out where Sully is, because Sully is now the key to finding, um, you know, his uh, daughter. Jenny. Okay, yeah, I just want to jump in real quick here. Um, so the thing about Sully is, uh, I, I messed this up. So this is, again, Sully is played by David Patrick Kelly, and he's dressed exactly the same way and, and acts the same way as he would later act in Twin Peaks as Ben Horn's brother, not Leland Horn. I got Leland Palmer completed with Ben Horn. So Ben Horn, the hotel owner's brother, Jerry Horn. So okay. David Lynch must have loved this movie. Because, I mean, he basically is the same guy with the same dress code uh, as as Sully. Yeah, well, we find Sully in the airport where Matrix uh, locates him. And he's basically almost he's he's uh, verbally and almost sexually assaulting Ray Dong Chong, who I'll just call RDC because that name's just too long to keep saying. 
And she is a flight attendant. She's on the phone when Sully uh, comes up to her. She's talking to some, you know, boyfriend or something like that who's trying to make plans with and she can't get it together. And Sully just basically sidles up to her and it almost is like groping her in the middle of the airport. Um, She tries to get away from him because he's, you know, weird and gross and is kind of quickly going away. Not really all that concerned that he's following behind her. You would think that she'd be a little savvy she might, you know, go to the, the airport police who are probably everywhere and say, look, this guy is basically, you know, assaulting me or trying to assault me. Can you help me out? No. What does she do? She goes to a dark parking garage with him following her. Um, and he comes up to her as she's trying to get into her Alfa Romeo convertible because that's what, you know, you know, flight attendants uh, basically drove at that point. Um, and almost, you know, tries to uh, rape her in the in the. Uh, airport park parking lot she tells him to fuck off insults him which is always a good thing to do to somebody who's about to uh you know attack you and he drives off arnold is of course watching from the distance because he's following sully and as ray don chong rdc is about to get in her car he uh kidnaps her and before really starting off on the adventure he does something very important he rips the seat out of her car Right. A car that's made to withstand crashes and and incredible forces has a seat that's so weakly attached that a human being could take it out. I don't care how strong you are. Right. I mean, it's like it's ridiculous. The car seats are bolted to the frame of the car. Yeah. For the reason that you just said is like the, the whole purpose of the car seat, other than place for your ass, is that it's a safety mechanism to make sure that you don't go flying with the seatbelt. Like. He rips it out like he's just like pulling a, a Band-Aid off of a, you know, a scabby knee, basically. And it, it is so bizarre. And the weirdest thing was, is there's really no reason for him to do that. Yeah, it's, I think you're supposed to believe he's so big he can't fit. But it's ridiculous because <laughs> when they're driving down the street, it's like when he first gets in the car, he's really low. But then wider shots just show him sitting in a seat. Yeah. I mean, he's just at the same height as her. It's not like he's eight feet tall. I know, he's right? Six foot two. You know, he's a big guy. He's not even really six could, foot two, by the way. But oh, he's it's like six feet or whatever he is. Barely. He's not short. He's not short. He's no, not he's short, but he's not a giant tall dude. He's just a very wide guy at this point, right? So, um, anyway, there's a lot of snappy dialogue where, um, you know, it's like something Ray Don Chunk says. You know, I want you dead too. All this kind of stuff. Six foot two. Six foot two. I knew it. Yeah. Th- that's, anyway, what he, that's what he claims to be. But there's a lot of controversy about that. You know, if you read the Arnold files, by the oh, way. Oh, OK. Um, anyway, so he follows. Uh, they follow a Sully and Sully's, uh, you know, banana slug colored uh, uh, Porsche uh, Carrera. He drives to the uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria to go to the hippest bar in L.A., which is across the mall from Perry's Pizza and Swenson's in the, in the Sherman Oaks Galleria bar called Sherwin's. Right, which we saw in Fast Times, and it looks much the same here. Like, it's yeah. almost, I mean, it's just a few years later, but it looks identical. And of course, yeah, Kerwin's, you see that. Yeah, pretty so funny. There, there's, by the way, not a real bar. It was a, probably an empty place in a mall that they made to look like this, you know, kind of 80s, uh, you know, St. Elmo's Fire cocktail, Tom Cruise sort of uh, place. And Sully sidles up in there to find his bad guy, a compatriot who he's buying a bunch of fake passports from in a very conspicuous, like, let me pass you a bag of money under the table moment. 
which is hilarious because like, wouldn't it be better instead of meeting at a bar, you could just like meet in the parking lot or at the beach or someplace where there aren't a lot of people. Nope. We're going to meet at Kerwin's, the hip happening bar of the Sherman Oaks Galleria. Sully pauses to uh, tell this bad guy who he's buying fake passports for that he uh, was a fan of this place in the past uh, for the funny uh, following reason. Yeah, motherfucker. It used to be a great place for hunting slash. It's got a little crowded now. I think I found something though. We'll see you. So, what do you think about Hutton, that? Hutton slash. So Hutt. gross. Awesome. I totally, how did I miss that line? I didn't even write in my notes about that line at all. Yeah. And you, of course, can hear the soundtrack in the background, those fucking endless Calypso synth drums. Yeah, you know? I know, right? So annoying. Yeah, so anyway. so uh, Sully, being the charmer that he is, talks about how uh, it used to be a good place for hunting slash. Now, what is happening in the plot at the same time is the kidnapped Radon Chong is now uh, under uh, Schwarzenegger's command uh, and control because he sends her into uh, Kerwin's here to uh, sidle up to Sully to draw him out so Schwarzenegger can grab a hold of him. And she's standing around there uh, looking at, you know, very uncomfortable. Sully sees her, comes up to her. Um, and you know, says, Hey, here's that, here's the same chick from the airport that, uh, wanted, wanted, uh, me dead and told me to fuck off. She just happens to be in this bar where she's contemplating telling the security guard that she's been kidnapped by Arnold and he's forcing her to do all these things. Sully goes in there and, um, starts hitting on Radon Chong and uh, eventually what they see, um, out in the distance is Arnold. Um, being harassed by the security guards who uh, Radon Chong has sicked on him uh, because right. she's trying so, to escape. Let me jump in here because I this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. So so basically there's one white security guard. He's in Kerwin's. He's the one she's going right outside Kerwin's. He's, she's the one he's going to telling. So Arnold has her go in, right? But then she tells the security guard, she points Arnold out, right? She says, this guy's trying to kidnap me. He's doing all these terrible things. So it's weird. She kind of goes along with him sometimes, but then doesn't. Eventually she will go along with them. And it makes no sense because again, she's trying to escape. Um, and at any rate, uh, the, there's another security guard who, who is also kind of talked to the other guy. He's a black guy. And this guy's talking to a bunch of women. Okay. Uh, just, uh, just people at the mall. And, um, he basically tells you know, as soon as, uh, the, the other security guard notifies him about Arnold and they're going to go get Arnold. The, the security guard tells the woman, so you want to see me kick some ass? <laughs> <laughs> and then he, then he says, he's such a big motherfucker. It's like the best amateur acting ever. Uh, um, and the other crazy thing is these security guards have weapons. I know. Like what mall security guard ever, if, if anybody's ever been to a mall and seen a security guard, I'm sorry, they are not licensed to carry firearms you know it's just only in this movie nor would you want them to be these are like not really highly skilled uh, people um by the way i think he says something like that is one gigantic motherfucker yeah (laughs) motherfucker motherfucker it's really funny so anyway sully sees that matrix is in the mall and is freaked out because it's like he's supposed to be on the way to valverde he has to call his uh, you know, comrades and tell them some, the plan has gone awry. 
he basically magically pulls a quarter out of Radon Chung's purse just by sticking his hand in there and grabbing it out, which is amazing, an amazing magic trick. And he goes over to these phone booths. Remember, remember this is the mid-80s, no cell right. phones. That magically appear right outside Kerwin's. None of those phone booths were there. That was all fake. Continuity error, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, they just, like, put them in there because they needed yeah. phone booths right there. And Sully goes over there and uh, is trying to make a phone call when Matrix uh, shows up and starts uh, trying to get at him. He's in the phone booth. What does Matrix do? He picks up the phone booth and throws it over his shoulder. Thing probably weighs at least 2,000 pounds, but not a problem for Arnold, right? Right. So there's this whole thing, and there's this whole uh, choreographed uh, scene in the mall where Arnold is out running the security guards. He does sort of that John Belushi thing at the end of uh, Animal House where he you know, pulls down a banner and rides it over to the top of the elevator where Sully is trying to make an escape. Uh, chases Sully. Sully gets in his, uh, you know, yellow Porsche. Uh, Arnold is in the way. So Sully just runs him over, but Arnold, not even a flesh wound, just kind of rolls off, um, and goes back to, uh, RDC's, uh, Alfa Romeo, uh, convertible, um, that he ripped the seat off and starts, uh, chasing Sully. Now here's one of the most bizarre fucking things in the movie. Sully peels out of the parking lot of the Galleria, starts he- heading down Ventura Boulevard, Arnold's in hot pursuit of the guy who's going to lead him to his, um, you know, kidnapped uh, daughter. Jenny. And weirdly, weirdly, Radon Chung just happens to be coming down the stairs of the Galleria out in front and is trying to flag down Arnold. And he stops for her and picks her up while he's in hot pursuit of Sully. He doesn't want Sully to get away and picks her up. Why? It doesn't make sense for any reason. She wouldn't want to get into a car with the guy who kidnapped her. And why would he stop to pick her up? It doesn't make sense from either of their perspectives. It's completely, it makes no sense. Like why she would be a liability to him. It turns out she's an asset for other reasons that he couldn't possibly know now. Uh, And she would be a liability to him. And of course he, she had just six security guards on him. So it makes no sense. I mean, I should also mention that her acting in this, like obviously, uh, you know, Siskel and Neighbor both thought she was perfectly charming. I mean, she's a cute lady, you know, she's got some state, you know, charisma, but she's like not very good. I mean, she she has like the, a lot of dialogue she's given is this kind of damsel in distress, typical kind of bad acting, like she's talking about how big he is or, or you know, like when he first t- kidnaps her, she says, oh, I'm on my way to karate class as if that's going to intimidate. It's like these goofy lines. And there's more, which I'll mention. It's very similar to Maria Cachita Alonso in Running Man. Yeah. It's like almost the same kind of, you know, very hyperactive delivery of these goofy lines that Steven D'Souza writes. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. So uh, anyway, they give chase to Sully. He's in this Porsche. The shitty Alfa Romero, uh, which is not a very powerful car, um, that or whatever it is, it's like a, almost like a Miata type car that would come later in Miatas. But they outrun this Porsche that uh, Sully is uh, driving, which seems unlikely. But hey, you have Arnold driving now. At this point in time, by the way, uh, RDC is sitting in the place where the seat used to be, and has no issue sitting in an empty place on the floor where there is no seat and she's sitting upright the whole time. She's not falling around. She's not, while they're giving chase, she's not getting knocked around being absent a seat, which is amusing. 
Of course, they give chase to Sully. Sully crashes on Mulholland Drive. Um, and Arnold and uh, RDC crash into the telephone pole that you talked about, which is amazing because it's like a 45-mile-an-hour, 50-mile-an-hour crash. Yeah, telephone we talked pole. about that. Neither of them are in seatbelts. They don't even move. They don't, she's not even in a seat and doesn't even hit her head on the dashboard. She would be ejected 200 feet. Yeah. Doesn't even hit yeah. her head on the dashboard. It's like so stupid. It's like you just sit there and laugh. Anyway, he finds Sully in, in the rolled over Porsche, pulls him out, dangles him um, over uh, the, uh, you know, a uh, looks supposed to be a cliff that is so steep and, you know, uh, you know, uh, high and steep that he would die being dropped off of it. But for those of you who don't know, he's in the Mulholland Drive, uh, you know, hills above Los Angeles. He probably dropped about 15 feet. Uh, it, this is not, <laughs> this is yeah, not like, yeah. you know, the side of, you know, the Iger or something like that. Anyway, here's a couple of scenes from that. Kiss my ass. I can't hear you. I'll say it a little louder than get fucked. Listen, loyalty is very touching. But it is not the most important thing in your life right now. But what is important is gravity. I have to remind you, Sally. This is my week off. You can't kill me, Matrix. You need me to find your daughter. Where is she? I don't know. I cook those. I'll take you where I'm supposed to meet her. But you won't. Uh, why not? Because I already know. <laughs> Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's right, Major. You did. I lied. What'd you do with Sally? I let him go. <laughs> All right. Pretty funny. Pretty yeah. funny. I guess he won't be hunting any more slash anytime soon. <laughs> I guess not. But but yeah, that's that that's actually one of the best. You know, those are a couple of the best classic one-liners right there. Yeah, uh, Sully is his uh, slash hunting days are over. That's a task taken up by um, a uh, probably fairly young W. Axel Rose who would be looking for the guitarist of his band. <laughs> um, a similar name. All right. Anyway. So we start seeing more scenes of Bennett, um, you know, this the the Freddie Mercury looking baddie with a pot belly who very isn't really an imposing figure. It's a really weird casting choice, just really, really weird. But the thing that's funniest to me is he's wearing what's supposed to look like a chainmail sort of outfit, you know, yeah. the whole time. But it's fabric. It's like fake chainmail, like it's like a fake T-shirt that is like it's not real chainmail. It's like fabric. It's like a, a t- fake tuxedo shirt. Yeah, it looks kind of like 80s, like, I don't know, rock and roll clothes a little bit. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's really 80s kind of. Th- there were people wearing that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah it's supposed West to look Hollywood. tough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it looks like. <laughs> yeah. That's actually what it looks like. Yeah. Yep. All right. So now, uh, you know, they... They know where uh, Sully's supposed to meet Cook, the Bill Duke character at this motel, which is in a thousand Rockford file episodes, right? Uh, yeah, it's in. The, it was used in Police One. It's called the Sunspot Motel, and it's this yeah. crazy mid-century '50s sci-fi art deck, you know, d- mid design, and it's really cool. I think it's an amazing set. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. So so the, so they catch they they're they're catching up with Cook at at the uh, the motel. They're waiting. Yeah. So they go where Sully was staying. They're waiting for Cook to show up. Um, and they and Cook shows up finally. And 
Arnold uh, decides that the way to uh, surprise and ambush Cook is to have RDC pretend that she was having a roll in the hay with uh, Sully. He helps her get ready for the part by tearing open her blouse, which is interesting, and say, look, you got to make it seem like you and Sully were having a good time. So she answers the door. Cook's like, where's Sully? And, you know, Radon Chong goes from terrified, you know, kidnappy to, you know, a skilled accomplice in trying to get, um, you know, Arnold's uh, uh, daughter um, back. (laughs) And, uh, you know, plays it up for Cook. Cook comes in and then Arnold ambushes him and they have the fight scene where you hear stuff like, you know, I eat green berets for breakfast and you hear stuff like this. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. (laughs) These guys eat too much red meat. So (laughs) So you get a shout out to T1, right? A reference to Terminator. I mean, he would he'd do that with I'll Be Back and other movies too. And it was very common to do. And then of course you get her her shouting, these guys eat too much red meat. Yeah. Which is pretty weird. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, is that Arnold does a lot of shoulder rolls away from bullets, which is pretty amusing um, at short range. You also have the scene that you were talking about before where they bust through the door uh, to the adjoining room in a motel where this couple is going at it. And the only reason to have this is so you can see this woman's naked body flopping around. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, you know, was a major source of inspiration for uh, for Slip, sounds like. Um well, I'm not the one who watched the movie 15 times. Well, that's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ted, but maybe some parts uh, okay. uh, 15. Yeah, maybe, I was busy maybe. watching the uh, yeah. Carter movie, actually. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, so now they know where they're going to. Uh, they have more clues to follow from, from Cook. Uh, they look in his car, and of course, he very conveniently le- leaves a bunch of clues in his uh, glove box. They know now where the bad guy warehouse is. Uh, they drive off to the San Pedro uh, kind of area um, in L.A., where, of course, there is some dockside uh, hideout. Um, it's all locked up with lots of chains and padlocks. And how does Arnold get around that? Well, he just gently pulls on the padlock, and it just busts open under his uh, manly uh uh, strength. Yes. Um, there's all sorts of crates in this warehouse that basically say "Cuidado, guns, please ship to Valverde, care of evil dictator Arius." Uh, in it, right? <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really funny. Um, well, they don't quite say that, but they all say like "Yeah, you know, send to Valverde," you know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, everything is pretty well organized, uh, you know, for this revolution. They they have some very top-notch sort of, uh, you know, project management uh, happening uh, there. Um, And there's even conveniently a map of where the uh, bad bad guy Arius Island is off the coast of Santa Barbara, just laid out in the middle of this secret room in the warehouse where Arnold finds it. He does a couple impressive-looking moves with, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, range finder kind of uh, triangulation tools on the map. And he's like, this must be where the bad guys are and where, uh, you know, obviously they're keeping his kidnapped daughter. Jenny. So um, then they figure out they have to do what, right? They have to go get guns, don't they? Yeah. Um, they go. Luckily, to- they find Surplus City. 
They, 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 yes. Surplus City, right? Isn't that where you buy your guns and rocket launchers? Yes. It's like, yes. It's, 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 it's weird because the surplus story is usually just for the clothing, but this is like for every weapon ever created, including rocket launchers. Let me ask you this. If you, if there were such a place in the middle of, you know, uh, on Pico Boulevard somewhere in El Segundo, which is apparently where this place looks like it is. Yeah. How would you break into a place that has like more guns than like, you know, some army barracks uh, base in the middle of, you know, know, Fort Bragg or something like that? How would you break into such a place? Yeah. You know, I would probably try to find a back door and maybe pick the lock, uh, you know, maybe check for cameras and all this. I, I think that's how I would do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if uh, you're Arnold and you could tug off a padlock just like gently. Yeah, he could just he could just break it off, right? He could just huff and puff on the back door and it would just fall down, right? But that's not the commando way of doing it. That's not things. the commando way because yeah. we're not about low profile, you know, right. under the radar sort of things here. What does Arnold do? He gets into a tractor that is conveniently sitting across the street, has its keys in it, because that's what you do in the middle of Los Angeles. You leave a tractor with your keys in it in an empty lot. And drives it over to Surplus City and goes right through the front window with it. Yep. He drove through the front window and then they start basically on a shopping spree of just piling on various guns, including a rocket launcher. And interestingly enough, swim fins, which he never <laughs> uses. I don't know why it he is gets Surplus the, City. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like, might as well, guy, you know, I need a pair of fins for, you know, after all this is over, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the only thing you didn't find in there were poppers, you know, for, uh, you know, amyl nitrates and stuff like that uh, for his after hours activities. Um, but anyway, so he robs this small business, Surplus City, of all their weapons. He happens to know that there is a secret back room um, that has all the really, you know, high end primo weapons um, that he that only Arnold knows how to use. He gets in there. He hits the magic button, steals all those things puts it in a shopping cart and loads it into RDC's uh, car. And uh, before they can, you know, get going, the SWAT team shows up uh, and throws him into the paddy wagon. Well, maybe if he didn't go through the front window with his tractor, he might've gotten away without the cops arresting him. Just saying. Yes. Yes. Um, so the cops throw him in the back of the paddy wagon. He drives off, but RDC, you know, you know, hours before a uh, flight attendant who was being sexually harassed by Sully, kidnapped by Matrix, decides, you know what I'm going to do? As they're driving away in this SWAT uh, van with Arnold in the back, I'm going to take out this rocket launcher that was stolen from Surplus City that I've never seen before, don't know how to use. I'm going to sling it over my shoulder and fire it and just see what happens. Just for the hell of it. And what happens? Well, she has it pointed the wrong direction. Whoopsie. Turns oh, really? I didn't even. Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. But, you know, it's funny because she does fire it. And later he's like, how did you know how to do this? And she's all, I read the instructions. So what? Yeah. You know, it's like she read where the instruct. you know, it's like, I think this might have been a, a, a I don't know what this was. Yeah. I don't know what this fucking was. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the other thing is it, 
whether she turns it the right way or not, you shoot that thing. You're just standing on a car on the seat of a car. It's like, isn't that going to blow you back like 50 feet? To yeah, shoot but apparently thing? she has the mass yeah. of a neutron star because when she crashed in, in the car and the pole, she didn't even move. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, she's got core strength. Like that's really strong. So she doesn't move <laughs> when, it, when she crashes a car. And then when she shoots a rocket launcher, she just stays. Yeah. No. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's fine. She's got, again, yeah. she must be made of neutron star material. Um, I, mean, I will say with her, I mean, there's, there's also no chemistry between them at I all. Know. Like they don't, they don't really hint at any kind of relationship. I think it's really cool that she's not just some white actress. It's kind of cool that they hire a you know person of color, kind of like Maria Cachito Alonso and uh, running man. Although in running man, he does make out with her at the end. So, yeah. but we don't get it. A spoiler alert. We don't get any of that here. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Their whole relationship. It doesn't really make any sense for most of the movie. Um, the fr- I think when she wants to run away from him, that makes sense. And then when she allies herself with him and he allies himself with her, it doesn't really make much sense. Anyway, she's following the cops trying to figure out how to get Arnold uh, back. And she pulls up alongside the, the SWAT team van and she's in her Alfa Romero looking car. She's dressed as a flight attendant. And the cops are looking at her and she's smiling back at them. And for that's a, reason, to be clear, that's actually I believe, isn't that before? She, it's before she shoots the before rocket launcher. Before she shoots launcher. the yeah, rocket yeah. launcher. Yeah, I, she's I trying to another tactic, I guess. I don't know what the, her, her is to distract them. or I, she. I don't know. It doesn't work, basically. And then she resorts, oh, fuck it. I'll just use that rocket launcher. I just read the 10-page manual about in two seconds. In two seconds. But yeah. the, the cops think she's a hooker, which is weird because there's nothing about her that would indicate that she's a hooker. She's in a car, dressed as no. a flight attendant. Like, why yeah. do they think she's a hooker? I don't, Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's so weird. Anyway, uh, so they go off. She fires a rocket launcher. Her idea is to shoot the rocket launcher at the van that has Matrix in it to rescue him. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I, I just yeah. want you to pause and that's think a about very, this That's logic. a very commando thing to do is, like, blow up shit and then worry about whether you've killed the person you're trying to rescue later. That's, like, very commando. How... That, how theme. ace of a shot must you be to shoot a rocket launcher at a van to be able to stop the van, flip it over, and with have nobody injured? Of course, like you know, every A team episode, but like that, you, you probably have to be pretty skilled. You know, she must be a hell of a read to be able to pick. Plus, up the he's in the back of a van. It's not like he's completely strapped into you know a diagonal seatbelt. You know, he's yeah. just sitting loose in the back of a van, and you blow it up, and it. You know, what's the what are the chances he could just die yeah. in the crash, exactly. let alone the explosion? You know, exactly. it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, that's the thing. That is the commando way. You do everything up over the top. You don't think about what you're doing before you do it. And you kind of hope it all works out. That's that's kind of the commando mode of operation, as we'll get into in the climax of the film. Yeah. Uh, it's even more that way. Yeah, so he, anyway. went, he wasn't in a six-point harness or something. He was just yeah, in the back of the pad. Exactly. Wagon. That's what I meant. Six-point harness. I didn't know the words. Yeah. Um, um so so he uh uh so they he rescues Arnold. The cops, of course, just dust themselves off and walk away because you can't kill cops. Um, you know, you can't be a good guy and kill cops, right? So they go, they ha- now they know the island where um, you know, Arius and uh and Bennett are, and of course, his kidnapped daughter. Kenny. <laughs> uh, so they're going to um, fly to this island. So where do they, how do they get there? Well, you got to take a seaplane. 
And conveniently, you know, they're running from the bad guys, uh, you know, or they're going to the seaplane, the bad guys show up and start shooting at them. Um, but Radon Chung, of course, is a pilot in training. They, uh, conveniently, they get into the seaplane, the bad guys show up because they're essentially stealing the seaplane. Um, the bad guys have endless number of Jeeps with lots of automatic weapons. They start firing guns at the seaplane, all over hitting this, this plane, which needs, you know, it's, it's sort of airframe intact to be able to fly. It needs its engine to be working to fly. Firing bullets everywhere, hitting the plane everywhere. They get in the plane. Radon Chong's like, I've only taken like, you know, one pilot's lesson. I've never flown this kind of seaplane before. I don't know what to do. Needless to say, the plane doesn't start because that's a trope in every movie. You know, it's just like, oh, it won't start. So why don't you tell us what Matrix does to get the plane that is having trouble starting under the hail of gunfire to start? What does he do? He hits the plane. <laughs> so he basically, and this, me and Jeff both watched this movie separately. We took our own notes and we said the exact same thing. He fonzies the plane. He fonzies the plane. He basically fonzies it and it starts working. Yeah. So the plane, after Arnold hits the plane in its sweet spot going, hey, um, you know, rock around the clock starts playing and then the plane takes off um, and Radon Chung's like, I don't bear, I don't know how to fly this plane. I've never flown a seaplane before. It's weird. It's different. She knows where all the controls are, though. And there's a throttle lever, which she's like, they're trying to take off in this crowded harbor. They're not taking off in the open sea or in an open area hits the throttle and they're not going to clear all of the other obstructions. And Arnold's like, she's like, we're not going to make it. And Arnold's like, yes, we are. And he hits the throttle. And then of course they clear everything. And it flies smoothly onto uh, Santa Barbara uh, Channel Islands kind of area where she can magically land the plane. Um, by the way, um, people who are pilots and landing is a lot harder than taking off. Uh, it needs a lot more practice uh, to do that. Um, lands a seaplane, no problem which is where, uh, you know, Arnold starts. Um, it, it's funny because they take off from San Pedro area, like roughly around one or two in the morning. But somehow it takes like six, seven hours to fly 50 miles out to uh, Santa Barbara. <laughs> well, I don't know if the island is supposed to, the island was off the coast of Santa Barbara in reality, right? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I think it might have might be farther away. They don't really say. Is it in Latin America? I don't know. Uh, How much well, gas could a away, they don't have enough plane fuel like to get that there. have either? Yeah. yeah, there's no way. But at any rate, we need to talk about this too. So while they're flying, they're actually detected on radar by a radar uh, technician played by Bill Paxton. So probably right. one of his first roles. But also during this time, since they're detected. We cut to a scene of Kirby, who now realizes that Matrix is doing this, right? right? And he and you get this one guy uh, at the at the table with with Kirby, who's like, "Well, he's just one man. What are you expecting?" And Kirby says, "World War Three. <laughs> so this is like that classic scene where the action hero is such a badass, and in a way, Matrix is almost a villain. He's so badass. Right? Yeah. He's such a killer, as we'll find out. But it's like it's very it reminds me of like the I think there was one like movie and I may be paraphrasing this wrong, but there's a great movie, Steven Seagal movie called On Deadly Ground with Michael Caine as the villain. It's so amazing. You have to it's a must see for anybody. It's so bad. So Steven Seagal was another one of these clowns, these B-rate Arnolds and, and yeah. Stallones. But anyway, there's a scene where it's like if if I had to fight him or God. I'd rather fight God. You know, it's like that kind of exaggeration of how badass these guys are. So dumb. Well, Steven anyway. Seagal's in about the same kind of shape that uh, Bennett is in, you know. 
Yeah. Actually, um, Bennett's probably better, really. Maybe. He's more fit. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, so let's move on. Let's move on. All right. So we start getting montages of all the bad guys on this island out wherever it's supposed to be. Um, we see like a thousand dudes, it seems like, on this island who are all the soldiers who are going to overthrow the the um, uh, Democrat, the democratically installed government that Matrix did in Valverde. And it's so all... they need Matrix to kill this one dude. Right. So they, they put this guy, they wait 11 hours for him to kill this one dude. They have a whole, they could just take their army and yeah. fight. Like, what the hell? They have like a, a 200 guys. You know, yeah. it's like, how many do they need? I don't know. It's just, it just, again, the whole premise kind of doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But the funny thing is, is every one of these uh, bad guy armies, uh, army guys looks the same. They all have the same mustache. Yeah. There's so many mustaches in this movie. And I think there might even be some fake ones. Yeah. Like they took a blonde guy, put a hat on him and put a mustache. So he would look like a, you know, a Valverdian. Yeah. I think there was one part where Mel Brooks dressed as an American Indian was wearing a mustache. To <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Um, but anyway, you just start seeing all these bad guys uh, that are Arius's army um, who are, you know, preparing for this big confrontation once Matrix, you know, kills the uh, the uh, guy in Valverde. Um, they still don't know that Matrix had jumped off the plane. Um, but one of the things that I, I wanted uh, to mention to you is the following scene. This is a really, really weird thing where all of these were, you know, uh, Bennett is walking around with Arius on this island talking about their great victory to come and how they're going to, you know, kill Matrix, you know, once he does the job and all that. And there's all these soldiers from Arius that are all standing around acting tough. And one of the guys who's sitting there acting tough, uh, you know, says the following. Slitting a little girl's throat is like cutting warm butter. Put the knife away and shut your mouth. So that's one of Arius's bad guys saying slitting a little girl's throat is like putting a warm knife through butter. Which, you know, Bennett laughs at saying, hey, and says some line about your little make-believe soldiers are no, you know, challenge to real men, right? Like, uh, like me and, and, and Matrix, right? One thing I, I do want to say here is this was almost like a game you can see of these soldiers playing like, you know, quien es mas macho? Slitting a little girl's throat is like putting a warm night through butter. What are other things they could have said? Like maybe throwing an old lady down a flight of stairs is like putting your thumb in some green jello. Or like what, what are some of the other sort of euphemisms they, they, they could have said for uh, being tough? I don't know, dude. I think I think the, the butter is actually pretty good and the delivery is pretty good. I think, I think the <laughs> delivery like is pretty delivery? good. Yeah, yeah. Were you yeah, intimidated by that guy? I think, it, I think it's like uh, he, he he's... He's a li- he could he is a better accent than than Dan Daya. You know, I will say that, but it's not much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um anyway, they so 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 Jenny is still behind. She's locked in a room, right? Yeah. And it's got this it's got this uh it's boarded up on the window. The windows are boarded up, but she figures out she can like take off the door latch. And then use that to pry open the wood. So she's meanwhile doing that while all this is happening. They're they're thinking they're going to kill her because, you know, uh, we don't know yet that they don't they don't know yet that Matrix has flown the coop because it's still not the 11 hours, but it's closing in on it. So basically, yeah. 
We start to see montages like uh, Matrix getting ready for battle. This is the uh, Speedo scene that the interviewer in that uh, Access Hollywood clip was talking about. Um, it's very it's very homoerotic. He's just standing around in a Speedo and start getting into fatigues. You had mentioned this before, right? Yeah, he basically, he gets undressed till he's in a Speedo to row a inflatable boat yeah. to the shore from, from, the, from the plane, and he's got all of his gear. Now, why he changes into a Speedo for this short boat trip where he's not getting in the water at all, I think it's pretty much so you can look at his physique. Like, yeah. there's just no other reason it has no. And then, of course, he immediately changes into clothes when he gets <laughs> on the shore. And yeah. there's this whole incredible, you know, uh, uh, super fast cut montage of him strapping in with sound. You know, it's like he's like strapping yeah. on a belt, you know, a, a fucking bandolier. He's got like, you know. Uh, the gun in this pocket, a gun in that pocket. He's got grenades. He's got, he's like completely weighted down with like 300 pounds full of weaponry. Um, And that scene is like, you know, very gratuitous. And of course, as he's running, you can see his like, they close in on his nipple, like bouncing and shit. He's all (laughs) greased up. He actually paints himself kind of camouflage too, which is actually an homage to Conan the Barbarian in the scene where he camouflages himself in white and black striped, paint um or makeup in in one of the scenes in conan it's kind of an homage to that but anyway by the way the, there's a scene where they show you know valverde airport where they're where it's now 11 hours later and- right so this is when they realize that he isn't going to be you know take do do what he he was supposed to do right they they find um they, they find that the guy he killed on the plane is dead and then they say whoops he's not on the plane something went wrong but I just want to point out that the, there's a scene of the Valverde airport outside and it's the most racist thing ever. There's like there's like goats and chickens right outside oh, yeah. the airport. Oh, yeah. Flea markets full of like, you know, native stereotypes and religious statues and open fire pits. And and this is the place where all the gringos are going for their vacation destination. It, it's really just frankly bizarre. Um, by the way. This, the U.S. government, if this island is supposed to be near U.S. shore, which would have to be for that seaplane to make it there on a tank of gas, the U.S. government's not concerned with an entire foreign uh, Sandinista army occupying this island. That, that seems weird uh, to me. Um, all right. We have these the, the major kind of battle scenes that most people who've seen this movie have seen. It's really one on, you know, one on, um, you know, 30, 40 guys at once, um, all the gun stuff, literally dozens of guys shooting at him with automatic weapons in, in close range. Um, he, None of them hit Arnold, of course. Um, he shoots all of them because they make themselves available um, and they all do the kind of like riddled with bullets, little pantomime um, for the camera. Um, there, there's a scene, by the way, where... Um, Somebody throws a grenade right next to him. It blows up. He's thrown from the blast of the grenade and is not injured at all. He just has a little tiny shrapnel. He just kind of dusts off a little cut that he has. Um, and uh, the, by the way, the grenade just kind of gently tosses him 
tosses him about. We, we also should say that the first thing he does is find a bunch of explosives around the compound right. um, and starts blowing up buildings. Now, how does he know his daughter isn't in one of those buildings? Yeah. Like he doesn't really know. He kind of, I think he assumes she's in the main house, which she is, but there's just no way he could know. It's again, the commando style of doing things where you just blow shit up and then hope that you don't kill the person you're, you're trying to actually save. But the other thing you mentioned here, and I don't know where you got this stat of just counting, but 81 men. You said he kills 81 men. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. I thought it was more like 200. It just seemed like he kills so many people during this scene and he's throwing grenades like crazy. What's funny though is none of this is terribly exciting. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of it is very much like, I mean, you know, like I actually found some of the earlier scenes, like the car chase. I think I agree uh, with Siskel on this that some of the scenes in this are just, I mean, they're funny because you see these kind of goofy guys in mustaches, just they're, they're, they're kind of running with their guns and then they're just waiting to be shot. It's yeah. kind of like you mentioned where there's six guys and they attack him one at a time. It's that kind of style. Um, I mean, it's funny. It's pretty, it's pretty brutal though. He really goes to town uh, killing these guys. Well, of course there's a couple funny things where um he goes into some kind of like a lawn shed garden shed garden yeah. shed yeah where there's you know and the, and the bad guys chase him there they dump literally about ten thousand rounds into this wooden shed with him in it doesn't hit him i mean they're firing these guns out they blow so many holes in the shed like sunlight is coming streaming through everywhere it's not injured at all because he magically can evade all these bullets and when they go in to check to you know see if they've killed him he, of course, uh, has a machete. He cuts one uh, guy's arm clean off with a machete. Hard to do. But even more amazingly, he takes like a, a, some kind of blade from some kind of lawn equipment and chucks it like a Chinese star at a guy's head. And the guy's head just like slices right off. That's how much, you know, torque and um, acceleration he can get on this lawn blade. Pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. The final, the final scene, uh, the kind of denouement, the whole thing. He has his fight scene with Bennett. Um, we should set this up by saying that Jenny has successfully pried open the, the, the wood at the window. They realize she's gone. They start chasing her and eventually Bennett, uh, chases her down into some steam tunnels of some kind. <laughs> in, in, on <laughs> yeah. an island in Santa Barbara, you would have 400 foot deep steam tunnels. How does that make any sense? It reminds me a lot of another island movie, uh, Michael Bay's uh, 1996 film, The Rock, starring Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, where inside of Alcatraz, under Alcatraz, there is a whole series of mine shafts and mining cars that looks like fucking Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. You know what's you know, under it's, Alcatraz? The Pacific fucking ocean. Yeah, exactly. It's like, a, the, it's even smaller island than this. Like yeah, it's, it's not even, it barely qualifies as an island. That's why they call it the rock. It's like yeah. a fucking rock. There's barely anything there, but somehow there's, it's very similar. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Bennett has, uh, has, uh, Jenny. and they're running <laughs> through, um, all of the steam tunnels. Um, matrix is after them. He finally catches up and he convinces instead of, instead of, uh, matrix, um, or rather Bennett just killing Jenny and killing Matrix. Matrix now is not armed. Bennett has a gun. He can just kill both of them and be done with it. We have to have this uncomplicated, uh, this complicated, unnecessary uh, kind of fight scene where um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's a Matrix character sort of goads Bennett 
um, psychological game, psychological uh, psychology games, whatever you want to say, into uh, getting rid of his weapons so they can have a mono a mono uh, kind of roll in the hay, as it were. Right? They finally have this fight scene where they're fighting, hitting each other a thousand times, beating each other with pipes and beating each other with you know clubs and slamming each other into things, including one where. Um, Matrix throws Bennett into uh, a fence that is electrified somehow in the steam tunnel. And uh, Bennett is electrified, but rather than kill him or seize up all his muscles or cause him cardiac arrest, what happens to him? Yeah, it energizes him. It energizes him. Yeah, it's like the electricity. Ener- it's like he's, a, I don't know, some kind of Marvel character. It's its ridiculous. I- and then he finally is, uh, you know, they, they finally have this final scene where it looks like Bennett is going to succeed in killing off Matrix. But no, you're wrong. Uh, Matrix, Arnold Schwarzenegger, grabs a one of the steam tunnel pipes that is inex- inexplic- inexplicably down on, you know, in the basement of this uh, huge island complex and throws it clean through uh, Bennett. Clean through. Right. And by the way, you know, there's lots of stuff where before they're going to, you know, have a fight scene, there's that let's let's party uh, thing you heard in the opening, uh, you know, montage. And then the final one is this. I to be a dying man. You're a dead man, John. Bullshit. John, You're a dead man, John. I'm not going to shoot you between the eyes. I'm going to shoot you between the balls. Let off some steam, Bennett. That sounds like a gay porn soundtrack. Just it does. It does. It really does. But it's also one of the dumbest one-liners of that. that this is like Running Man level. Let yeah. off some steam. Although I will, I like Running Man more than this in general. But but I will say that it it just gets more over the top. Anyway, so the good guys win, the bad guys lose. Presumably, Arius, who's killed in the in the melee earlier, obviously exchanging gunfire with um you know arnold uh arius uh, is fooled by the the whole thing i'm gonna fire at you you're hiding you fire at me i'm hiding and and you know uh obviously matrix finally just tricks him to coming out in the open where he uh kills him with um, machine gun fire really just unbelievably crazy this stupid ass shit now the army shows up they figured out that we're uh you know because uh RDC's out in the plane trying to radio Kirby uh, constantly, uh, making prank phone calls, whatever she's doing out there. And Kirby and the army show up after everything is over, mind you. And they find, uh, you know, Matrix carrying, um, you know, his daughter out of the wreckage towards the plane, off into the sunset. Except weirdly, here's the thing that I just couldn't figure out. Number one, he walks over to... um, He's carrying his daughter. He puts her down. She runs towards the seaplane and gives Radon Chung a big hug and gets into the seaplane. She would have no idea who RDC is. Right, right. Why? Like, who? She's like, who is this lady? Why is she standing next to a seaplane that we're getting into? 
And number two, and this is even more bizarre, we've already established that she could barely fly the plane. She had like one lesson and Arnold is going to, and Arnold doesn't know how to fly the plane. They're both going to get into the seaplane with his daughter and she is going to fly them off into the sunset. Somebody who's never flown really before. There are 600 army pilots all over the place. It's true. Why would he trust this woman who can't fly to fly him and his daughter away into safety? So weird. Anyway, we end the movie with the soundtrack, the song, We Fight for Love, written by Andy Taylor, right? Right, and Michael DeBar. We already talked about this. Yes. Yeah, so so of course, these guys, Andy Taylor, it's that Andy Taylor uh, from Duran Duran, who later joined Power Station. He was kind of always the rock guy in Duran yeah. Duran. You know, he grew his hair long. He didn't want to play that pop music. He wanted to play rock. And this is like totally that kind of lover boy uh, rock. You know, it's like really ridiculous. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a classic uh, 80s kind of end credits song. Yeah. You know, it's very, very exactly what you kind of want it to be uh, for this kind of movie. All right. So let's do final evaluations here after that mammoth walkthrough. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Here's my evaluation. Like that. First of all, the idea that Bennett was in love with Matrix and felt rejected by him, that should have been a major part of this movie. How good, of, how cool that have been. Like there's this whole like really, really, um, you know, kind of involved plot where, you know, he kind of is in love with Matrix. It's not just a subtext. Um, they had a relationship, uh, it got, went wrong. Um, like that could have been a much more interesting movie, not one Arnold would have made, but um, could have been better. Um, I do like the idea of Gene Simmons playing Bennett with the assless pants. That would have been incredible. <laughs> As much as I love the, you know, Freddie Mercury, uh, you know, Bennett, Gene Simmons being the bad guy. Yeah, acting couldn't have been any worse. Um, Okay, I got to talk about Arnold and all his bad behavior here for a second, because at the time when this movie came out, I certainly wasn't aware of it, or probably some people were experiencing it for sure, but maybe it wasn't as well known in the media. We didn't have the same kind of media outlets that we do now. But, I mean, Arnold's kind of a lying sack of shit. He's always maintained that he never took steroids. He did. He always maintained that he never did drugs while on pumping iron. He admitted he took steroids. That did he? he? Did. Yeah, yeah. I saw a lot of interview stuff where he said he never took steroids. No, he's he's admitted it. He's come clean about it since. Well, but yeah. he's come clean after he initially. Uh, dude, he, he admitted it. He admitted he, it. He's, he's you just, can't say that. He admitted it. He, he, I, I have proof. I have interviews where he says he never took steroids. Later, he might have admitted it. They for might years, have been earlier, inter- earlier interviews, but yeah, he's, he's definitely admitted it. He, he's, he, uh, in his book, Total Recall, he talks about it. So. Which was published when? Uh, I don't know, like 2011. Okay. So later on, yeah, later yeah. on. He, um, has a long history of, as a sexual harasser of many women. Um, there's many, many stories where he would just like grope women, grab at their bodies, um, interviewers, co-stars, people who worked on the set. Um, I counted, um, I was looking at this one article that was sort of um, laying out all these accusations, well over 25 of these over the year in various uh, various places. Over, over, over This is over several decades. Um, we talked about his, you know, father's you know, Nazi past and how he grew up and things like that. 
You know, I, I, my opinion of that is I'm not too, um, I'm pretty sure rather that most of the people who lived in the town and village where he grew up didn't really have much choice other than to be Nazis, um, given that the whole country was occupied. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that Arnold really had much of a choice growing up in that environment either as a kid. The story you talked about with the that weird kind of yeah, I you know, agree with that. It's well, just like, that's what you grow up with. Yeah. You don't know anything. It's you know, obviously you learn hatred. You know, it's not yeah. like he uh, could have done anything about that as a little child. Exactly. He didn't really yeah. have any moral choice there. It's just the environment that he he grew up in. Arnold's cheating on his wife is legendary. Um, you know, it's like I mean, who? How many women did he um, you know cheat on his wife with, including by the way, a maid? <laughs> Yeah, and he had a kid. He had a he kid had with a kid. the maid. And it's funny, you see that kid. It's like, you know, he lied about that at first, too. He said, yeah. it's, I'm not the father and all this stuff. But you see the kid now, grown up, and obviously Arnold eventually admitted it. Yeah. Uh, but you see the kid now. He's like, a, you know, he looks like him so much. I mean, it's like crazy. He's even muscular. You know, yeah. he's even got the good genes for 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 building muscle. You know, so it's, it's yeah, he's, he's obviously uh, Arnold's son. What's funny about it is Arnold probably cheated on Maria Shriver probably hundreds of times. And she must have known about this. You oh, know, yeah. a lot of the stories I was reading, it's like she he's basically in her face about it. There's no way she didn't um, know about it. Of course, she's a Kennedy. So when you're a Kennedy yeah. woman, you grow up, there's a manual they give you. It's like, how to deal with your, <laughs> totally. I didn't your, even think of that. You're cheating it's, husband. Yeah, that's, yeah exactly. That's it's like, like an perfect. heirloom they pass down from one yeah. generation to the next. But basically, she tolerated it for years until there was such incontrovertible evidence that he had fathered this child with one of their housekeeping staff that she's just like, all right, at this point, I can't possibly keep going on with this. But I mean, she must have known about his hundreds and hundreds of affairs with like his co-star team having an affair with the woman who played Melina in Total Recall 2. Um, oh, yeah, and she surprised. was married at the time as well. Right. So that's extra gross. Um, so anyway, I, I just find him and just to be a really just a gross dude, just gross, just as a person. He's just like, I don't know. It's one of these things where you go back and you learn too much about somebody that the, you know, larger than life character has all these, you know, really shady, dark shit going on. It's not uncommon. Um, but I just, it, it, it really in the research for this has colored my opinion of this movie to the negative too. Um, and, and maybe his other stuff as well in his larger career, I have to admit. Where I come down on this movie is, it depends on how you view it. I mean, putting aside all his, you know, kind of personal behavior issues and uh, challenges with the truth and political career and all that other shit. What do you think this movie is? Is this movie supposed to be a goof? And if it is, then I think it's kind of funny and I'm sort of slightly long on it. I would say that it probably is intended to be a goof because even in the trailer, they have these one-liners where they're sort of winking, you know, at the camera, if you would, about it and saying, we know this is supposed to be a comedy. There's no way they have all these scenes with him, one dude killing, you know, a thousand dudes who are all standing around waiting to get shot and it not being a goof. If you look at it through that lens, I'm slightly long. If you really want to look at it as a serious film, then I'm totally short on it. It's terrible. 
I mean, it's it's not a good movie, but it's sort of amusing, and I've always sort of found it amusing. Although just learning more about his personal behavior just makes it hard to tolerate him as a as a person. I just like look at him and just go, ugh, these poor women who are subjected to him groping them and you know all that kind of shit. So there you go. All right. So since you tackled those two sides of it, Arnold and the film itself, I'll do the same. So as far as Arnold goes, I think uh, Arnold will stand the test of time, regardless of the issues he's had in this behavior, which, of course, is reprehensible. I think the reason is, is because of the timing when this stuff came out. So I think if Arnold's uh, sexual harassment and behavior on sets had come out later, like in 2017 with Me Too, we would be really questioning whether he would stand the test of time. But it came out a lot earlier than that. And people knew about it. And by the time Me Too came out, he did apologize for some of his behavior. He did finally, like during the race for the governor, of course, he denied everything, right? And then later, he admitted to it and kind of came clean. And then, of course, right, and his whole thing as the governor and all that. But what's happened is the right has moved so far to the right that someone like Arnold actually kind of is seen as more of a moderate person. And his views on climate change, like he's 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 totally supported climate change and his views on the pandemic are much more with the kind of mainstream. And so I think he, and he's also a lot older. And so I think people have kind of just unfortunately, in a lot of ways, it's unfortunate that they have looked beyond his his behavior. And so I think he's seen now as just kind of this old elder statesman, you know, this classic, you know, he appears in movies once in a while and he's asked his opinion about things and he's still running the Arnold classic bodybuilding stuff and all that. The most controversy he's had is when he actually talked, uh, uh, he, he kind of uh, dissed the anti-vaxxers and a lot of these bodybuilders who, of course, a lot of these health nuts are conspiracy theorists. They boycotted the Arnold that year. You know, but again, even that's going to fade. So I think overall, because of his legend in the bodybuilding world, but even more in the movie world, I think he's going to stand the test of time. Now, again, the accusations and stuff are pretty much proven to be true, and it should count against him. I'm just arguing that because of the timing, it may not. It may not actually. It may not. It just depends on what happens in the future. But again, he's so old now. People, it's old news to people. People's attention span is so small. For but do you stuff. think like 30 years from now when people are going, when Arnold's dead and, you know, all this stuff and they're going back, hey, remember this action guy, this bodybuilder? Will all of the, his past history and all his bad behavior kind, kind of come to the surface and sort of be mixed together with him as an older guy? Like you, you've, you and I have lived his entire career, so we right. can separate that out. If it's compressed in time, do you think the same thing will happen? Yeah, and then there's also the next generation is much more, you know, strict, uh, which is a good thing, right? The new newer generations of of people are much more uh, in, less tolerant of this kind of behavior, right? The, the this kind of behavior was tolerated at such a level. You even made a joke about the Kennedys, right? Right. We didn't even talk about this in 1960, where John Kennedy was just behaving like a monster, you know. Uh, and we didn't even talk about that in those days, right? The casting couches, it wasn't even a thing, right? And it was only in 2017 with you know Weinstein, which was just behavior beyond the pelt that was tolerated for decades because he was so powerful. This kind of powerful men being able to act however they want. The younger people are 
way less tolerant of that. So it, you could be right. But at the same time, I'm like, well, there's also the attention span thing. Yeah. And there's different people looking at it in different ways. You know, there are more conservative people who are just kind of like, well, you know, that was just him, you know, whatever, fooling around. Um, again, I don't believe that. And I think I think it would be nice to have him be held accountable in his legacy for this stuff. Right. But I'm just not sure it will be. So as far as that goes, there's that. Right. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the movie goes, um, the movie does seem to be kind of a get uh, a goof. And there there does seem to be kind of an interesting homosexual kind of campy subtext to it. And I think that's intentional because you look at the beginning. What's Arnold carrying? He's carrying a giant phallic symbol. Right. Yeah. And what does he do at the end? He he uses a giant pipe, a phallic symbol at the end to uh, to impale or to penetrate uh, Bennett. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, there's, there's this kind of camp with aspect. white stuff coming out of, yeah, you know. it's really, it's really over the top, but you also have to look at the influence, right? So obviously these kind of movies in the eighties were really a new thing where it was this over the top. You had a, a, a person that was this invulnerable to harm, yeah. right? A ta- one man army kind of thing. And that has since morphed into Marvel. Right. Essentially, now we're not even making any bones about it. Everything's about superheroes now. It's not just normal people. And even Fast and Furious, they're they have superpowers that would make John Matrix look like, you know, a regular person. I mean, they're flying out of cars, driving cars at, uh, you know, thousands of miles an hour, jumping from one car window to another and, uh, you know, doing all this crazy action that would kill them. And then, of course, Marvel's the same thing, you know. Uh, so I think there's an influence there, but I think what's interesting is there's starting to be a backlash against that. And I think people are burnt out on this. And yeah. I think this is the ultimate legacy of these films. You know, when you even have the rock, you know, the rock is modeled his whole career on Schwarzenegger. It's essentially the same thing, right? He was in wrestling and then he became this massive star, but his last movie didn't do very well. Um, black Adam and all of the DC and Marvel stuff is kind of folding in on itself. You know, the, the latest Ant-Man movie that just came out as of this recording is a total bomb. So, I mean, that people are burnt out on this. And it's kind of, for me, in a way, I kind of like that. Because, you know, while I appreciate some of the, the how much fun this movie is, you know, and how campy it is with the one-liners... Um, watching it again, I was kind of surprised by how few one-liners actually, you know, that let off some steam and you have, I lied and I let him go. I lied and I let him go are the best. That's the best thing in the movie to me. That is actually funny. You know, that's actually clever and funny and Arnold delivers it perfectly well, you know, but, um, I actually prefer Total Recall and Running Man to this because at least they have some fun sci-fi elements and they're yeah. more fun to watch. And then you have this incredible they're movies villain. too. Yeah. yeah, they're better movies. I mean, you know, like Dan Adea's acting is terrible. He's barely in the movie. I mean, Bennett is entertaining, but it's pretty bad. But then you have Richard Dawson who plays this really over-the-top version of himself. And it's so funny and it's so entertaining. I mean, when I, when I first watched Running Man with my wife, she had never seen it. And we watched it like, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago. And she was like, man, that was great. Yeah. And it's like, because it's so fun and over the top. And then Total Recall is actually a good movie. Yeah. You know, it's got some ridiculous stuff to it, but it's mostly like a well-directed, you know, Paul Verhoeven, well-directed movie. I don't know how it holds up. I haven't seen it in years, but I imagine it holds up a lot better. But this movie there's really not much to it. Like almost half the movie is that it feels like that, that last rate on the compound is like 30 minutes. And it's funny that, um, Siskel's like, Oh, that should have started sooner. I'm like, what? It would just be a raid. There would be no other. And I actually think some of the best parts of the movie are in the earlier parts, 
So I would say as a movie, it's short. And I also think that this kind of over the top action thing is actually, I'm not sure what's going to replace it. Maybe more science fiction and fantasy, but I think I think the with the Marvel thing and the and the endless action and it people are kind of getting burnt out on it. Something yeah. else is gonna come yeah, in. Violence porn is what I call it, or action porn. It's just I can't take it either. Right. And it's like this movie is more funny to us and it's nostalgia and it's fun to explore this kind of genre. Uh, this 80s action film. It's just such a CFX thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, I'm kind of short on it. Um, and again, with Arnold's thing, I'm not sure about that. I'm so, sort of on the fence. I see your points, but I also wonder about people's attention span. And I also wonder about his other side that people admire um, just overall. So it's hard for me to say. Well, then you have stuff in his oeuvre, like Junior. And oh yeah, twins is the worst. I we watched twins for our film club, our lockdown film club, which has still been going on since March 2020. Um, and it was it put everyone to sleep. Yeah. It it's it's really unwatchable. It's really unwatchable. It's not funny, even though it's his most successful movie personally. Um, not if not overall. But yeah, that stuff is unwatchable. So all right, so you're you're uh short. Uh I think I'm I, short, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that'll wrap things up here uh, for Commando. Again, you know, if you watch this movie in the spirit in which is probably intended without any of the other context, you know, it's probably slightly amusing. But, you know, we have to, as we do at CFX here, jump into the entire context of the of the whole thing and talk about that. So there you go. Um, we now will sign off. We hope you enjoyed episode 32 of uh, CFX for Commando. And, you know, by the way, we went through this whole episode and we didn't even get back to the eating isn't cheating thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think we should end this episode by talking about that particular incident. What do you think? Dude, dude. Well, that is hearsay. You know, we we do have to say that's hearsay (laughs) that someone said they overheard. Although we did hear, actually, the Access Hollywood kind of, he did use that again. He so did. Yeah, that was in the that's Access actually, Hollywood. Right, right. Uh, it kind of was uh, not clear. Maybe he was uh, otherwise occupied at the time. But, but yeah, it's uh, that it, that line pretty much killed me when when I. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, dude, it's like Bill Clinton. It's yeah. the same thing. It's like Bill Clinton and Arnold are the same. Like it's the same. Bill Clinton. There's so many accusations. It's so terrible. Yet. There are people who love him and think he was a great president or whatever. And it's like, what's, how's it going to pan out? You know, I mean, I remember, this is a whole tangent, but I remember when Monica Lewinsky was around, everyone, all liberals, like including myself, were like, oh, they're all mad at her. Like, how could she do this? She didn't do anything. (laughs) It was him. Yeah. He did everything. And yet we're trying to blame her because, you know, we're trying to, it's the whole right wing machine and all that. But it's like, it's just very similar. Yeah. You know, uh, his legacy is a mixture of those things. And it it depends on how, you know, the generations will, will think of it, you know? Well, he also I, eating isn't cheating is a Bill Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton didn't, he said, I never had sex because it was oral sex. So it's the same right, thing. The same right? thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was exactly like in the Access Hollywood thing. Somebody walked in on him uh, performing and uh, saying, no, it's not. Don't worry about this. Eating isn't cheating, which, by the way, 
is on a great t-shirt, which will be one of our clues <laughs> for this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, all right, signing off here, leaving it on that note, eating is not cheating. I'll leave you to decide whether Arnold is correct or not. This is Jeff, that's Slip, signing right. off. Come on, baby. You know you're the girl of my dreams. I'm through with you.